All right. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm Dale, the Real Seeker, and uh, today we have a special treat. So um, you'll uh, recognize uh, on Saturday we had the Great God debate uh, between me and Travis as the two Christians, and then we had uh, two atheists, uh, David Johnson and Jordan, and they came back because um, my friend Phil Bear uh, reached out to me behind the scenes. He was uh, watching the, the debate and uh, very active in the live chat, and you know, he, he's uh, very knowledgeable in philosophy himself and Christian apologetics. He, he's actually written, just recent, recently written a book on the new atheists and addressing uh, some of the arguments from atheism and stuff like that. Uh, so he wanted to do a, a quick little follow-up show and, and have kind of a discussion with the two atheists. And thankfully, David and Jordan were kind enough to, to come back on two days after they, they did the debate. So yeah, in the, in the first place, uh, Jordan, uh, how, how's everything on your end? Uh, it's going, uh, you know, not much has changed since Saturday. So if you want to know what's going on on the channel, I talked yeah. about it last time, but basically more shadow turn stuff, you know, the, it's we the gotta... gift that eternally gives like it's a, it's a never ending well of content. <laughs> you got a snazzy new bow tie. You can talk about that. So, <laughs> well, this is not a new bow tie, but I don't get to, uh, I usually have a green screen, uh, but mm -hmm. I switch it out for a work thing. And so I've been taking advantage of that and wearing green bow ties because obviously I can't wear them when the green screen's up. So this has all the Boar's atoms on it. You probably can't tell, but that's what those are. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right, cool. Only the finest bow ties to go with my T-shirts. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And on the other end, we have uh, David Johnson. Uh, yeah, I know it's been been two days, but uh, yeah, anything you want to say to the to the audience? It feels like just yesterday. I, um, I had a long day at work. Um, I'm not great. No one has done anything in their life bad enough to deserve to see my face right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. So I want to go to, to Phil bear. Obviously he's the new face in, in the, in the room here. And Phil, I think this is actually, we've been on a few shows on the faith unaltered podcast, but this is your first time on real seekers as a guest. So do you want to maybe just take a few minutes to kind of introduce the audience as to who you are uh, maybe mention so stuff about your, your new book um, and uh, yeah, stuff about your faith journey as well, if you're willing to share. Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thank you very much for accepting this suggestion that I made. Um, and thank you, Jordan. And thank you, David. You guys are absolute angels and peaches, you know, for doing this. Um, that's uh, a lie, but thank you. <laughs> well, I, I have a lot of respect for you two. And you know, before the show, we were talking about uh, whether or not we're experts and whether we're textbook philosophers or barroom philosophers. And I just want to mention at the outset that I heard things from both of you on Saturday that gave me the distinct impression that you have disciplined minds, that you're articulate, and that uh, I think that you deserve to call yourself philosophers, even if you don't think you're experts in it, you know, so I'm not sure that there's really such a thing as an expert philosopher. That's kind of a nebulous concept for me, but um, I'll just tell you a quick story just to kind of give you a little bit of an introduction on me. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I was the son of a Methodist minister um, who died when I was nine years old in a car train accident. Um, I went to the University of Iowa and majored in philosophy, um, and my Christianity was just ripped to shreds 
uh, in the philosophy classes that I attended. Um, the uh, professors were brutal in assaulting Christians in particular. You know, and I don't want to have a persecution complex, but it seemed like Christianity was the biggest target of the atheist philosophy professors at the University of Iowa. Um, so I began to drift away from my faith and I began to doubt and I began to question uh, a whole lot of principles in the Christian faith and my mother panicked. Um, and she started asking around to her friends, said, what do you think I should do about the fact that Phil's Christianity is being dismantled in the university? And uh, uh, one of them suggested that she buy me a book by a Christian philosopher. Since philosophy is, has been my passion since I was in junior high. Um, and so she bought me a book by a fellow by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And that book really helped turn me around, not because everything he said was necessarily valid and true and sound. Uh, I think most of it was. Um, but the point was that he he kind of taught me that uh, the Christianity is philosophically sound. It is not uh, it is not just philosophically bankrupt um, and that it is it is not only okay and permissible but it's even proper and and it's actually advisable for a Christian <coughs> to raise doubt and to entertain doubts about about their belief system um so that kind of restored my faith in christianity um and after that i began reading books by c.s lewis and alvin plantiga and jp moreland and norman geisler and a whole host of of uh, Christian philosophers and apologists, but I also amassed a library of about 1,500 books, and most of the books in that library were written by people who were antagonistic to the Christian faith instead of in favor of it. So I have read more by anti-Christian and anti-theist, atheists and, and sometimes pantheists, um, I've written, I've read more by those kinds of authors with that worldview than I have uh, read authors that are favorable and supportive of the Christian faith, um, because I wanted to know what the challenges were. I wasn't, I wasn't happy to just hear a lot of the apologists, uh, you know, what they were saying. I wanted to know what the challenges were, and I wanted to know how I could counteract those challenges and how I could address them if indeed they could be addressed. You know, so, um, so that really pretty much put me on a lifelong pursuit of philosophy uh, and Christian apologetics uh, that brings me up to today being probably the oldest guy in the room. You know, <laughs> um, But that's kind of where I've come. That's the journey that I've come through. Um, the book that I may try to appeal to a little bit today is not actually my latest book. I wrote this book in 2016. Um, and the book is called Machines Don't Laugh. And one of the central themes in the book is that if, if we are just the product of random natural law, then we are nothing more than machines, but machines don't exhibit the features and qualities and characteristics um, and properties that human beings possess. Um, so, 
and I'll I'll actually be using that argument a little bit today. I'll be I'll be referring to it uh, somewhat. Um, my latest book is actually a 440-page book on Calvinism. <laughs> so, uh, and it's against Calvinism. Um, but a lot of my material in that book refers to determinism. Um, and I have noticed that there are at least two kinds of determinism, theistic determinism and scientific or materialistic or naturalistic determinism. And both of those have dire consequences uh, for our quest for truth and knowledge and so on. So um, they are related in that sense because they both address determinism. They just do it from different perspectives, you know, so um, that's that's probably all I need to say. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Yeah, no, it's great to great to have you on board on the show. Definitely, I, like I said, I've had. Um, I think this is our fourth time speaking. Uh, was it three three shows we did? And yeah, um, one time we actually did a debate on can God lie, and Phil managed to change my mind, believe it or not. So, yeah. Um, well, can he? <laughs> he cannot. Um, I used to say he could, um, or that it was logically possible that he could, but I changed my mind on that. So. All right. Well, well so then you sh you should have told me about that because that means you've lost even more debates against me than we've tallied so far because you were saying that he could lie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty important. Um, have we'll have that. to retally the score now. Go ahead. It has to be said, though, Dale, that um, even though you changed your mind in the course of that discussion, um, I learned a tremendous amount from you. And I always do. Every time we're on a show together, I always come away learning something from you that I didn't know before. Yeah, so, And for the record, Phil, uh, theologically, I would agree with you. Uh, God is not human that he can lie. He, he can't. Awesome. He just simply can't do it. And the Bible is kind of repetitious on that point. So. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, well, here's something. So get kind of getting into it, then I definitely know you guys are going to disagree, um, just for the audience. So we're going to kind of focus, uh, we're going to kind of leave out the theistic arguments. And Phil really wants to tackle the two atheistic arguments that were kind of mentioned, the problem of evil and the hiddenness of God. Um, so yeah, uh, Phil, do you have any particular order you wanted to do it? Do you want to just cover the problem of evil separately from the hiddenness or? Um, actually, I, I don't necessarily have a preference on the order. Um, I have, I, I have pretty much have four main points, um, that I wanted to cover. Um, okay. and the first one is the problem of evil or suffering. Um, the second one is the problem of divine hiddenness, because those are the two primary ones that we actually discussed, or you guys discussed a couple of days ago. And I was just heckling, <laughs> um, <laughs> And I and I I thank you guys for being patient and you know in my heckling. Um, uh, so and then, but the third point that I want to raise is a point about the credibility of atheism as a worldview, and the fourth one, um, the fourth point that I want to make is uh, is about uh, what the lack of God's existence does to human knowledge and epistemology. Okay. Um, so we can cover those in any order that you want. Um, one option would be that I could just cover my whole, the whole litany, my all everything that I have to say all at once, and then you guys can come back and or or we can cover one of them at one one of the four at a time, 
and yeah, I think let's but, let's cover it maybe one at a time since that's the format we took with the debate kind of thing. So yeah, going going in order. Let let's start with the problem of evil. Like what? I guess we can start with you, Phil. Like what? What is it you wanted to say about the problem of evil? You you've heard uh, Jordan's case on yeah. that. So yeah, give your opening, and then we can open it up to dialogue. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll try to make this quick. I'm I'm, I'm going to run through my notes as fast as I can. And by the way, this is going to be um, a little bit abbreviated, you know, because to go through this in depth, you know, is going to take longer, way longer than the time that we have, you know. Um, but but uh, what I want to address is basically is mainly what Jordan had to say about the problem of suffering. Um, and so I wanted to answer a few of his points, several lots of his points. <laughs> um, and again, I'll try to do this as fast as I can and as efficiently as I can. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to quote Jordan. Um, and I'm, I want to make sure that, that we, everybody understands that my quotes might not be exact. And so, but, but I think that I caught the drift of Jordan's points. And so if so, if I haven't, and I and I've misstated them and misrepresented them. Then absolutely stop me uh, and correct me because I I don't want to misrepresent anybody, you know. Um, but if we just want to dig right into it, um, Jordan made the point that if a loving, compassionate God exists, there would be very little gratuitous suffering. Um, and I, Jordan, I want to give you the opportunity to to let me know if that's accurate. Um, it's almost word from word from the video, but I want to make sure that it's, it's yeah. a fair representation. I, I said very little because technically the deity that Dale was defending isn't omnipotent, like perfectly powerful, perfectly knowing, but just like maximally so a lot powerful. So, Okay. Well, so my, um, my response to that is that um, gratuitous suffering is a question-begging epithet. Um, and the question-begging epithet is a term that's used in an argument or a proposition that uh, th that where that term is not justified in the argument. And when I say gratuitous suffering is a question-begging epithet, that what I mean is, uh, what is the basis for calling some suffering gratuitous? Um, and my idea here is that I don't think you've given us a criteria for what is what can be called gratuitous as opposed to non-gratuitous suffering. Um, it seems like you've just given us an assertion that you haven't supported. Um, so the above confl also conflates pain with suffering. And we had a little bit of a side conversation where we talked about that. Um, and, and I would point out that pain and suffering are not the same thing. Uh, pain is a biological sensation. Suffering is an emotional reaction to pain. Suffering is, I am in pain and I don't like it. Um, it is emotionally traumatic for me. Um, if God does not exist, then I made the comment the other day that suffering does not exist because the natural world without God would not produce emotional beings because it has no reason to. So... Um, in my book, I said this, a machine that an engineer builds will obviously be more sophisticated than a machine that appears in the natural world by blind chance with no intelligence behind it. It follows necessarily that if a machine an engineer builds does not have a given feature or property since it is beyond the capabilities of the engineer, 
That feature will certainly not be found among the machines that would randomly appear in nature without any engineer or intelligence there to design and build them at all. So mere pain without the emotional response is enough to satisfy the survival imperative. Emotion is not necessary because pain says, whatever is causing my pain threatens my survival. Therefore, I will implement the pain avoidance protocol. But uh, one of the objections could be, um, could the emotion make the pursuit of survival more effective? Um, but if that's true, someone thought of that and installed emotion into biological life forms. Otherwise, there's nothing there to comprehend the idea that emotion we would contribute more to the survival imperative than mere pain by itself. Um, and an, a, a little side note here is that the idea that pain avoidance is the key to survival is, is incoherent, given that female animals and people experience intense pain in childbirth. So if pain avoidance was the key to survival, females would avoid having children, which defeats the whole pursuit of, of survival. The human race does not survive. Right. So pain avoidance turns out to be too simple and not worthy of our credence. So there's three things there so far. Uh, the first one, you said that gratuitous suffering is question begging, and I haven't given a justification for that. In my opening, uh, what I intended to be the justification was when I said, uh, when I was, I tried to describe what I meant by gratuitous suffering. That would be suffering that serves no greater purpose, has no goal. And in what I had in mind was you might say that a person suffers in the gym, but that suffering leads to something better at the end because they're you know have great guns or whatever um so when i say gratuitous suffering i just mean suffering that for all appearances has uh ser serves no end uh doesn't bring about some greater good that would justify it but that's where the that's where the question begging comes in because um you don't you don't know that it serves no end so, um you're, you're simply saying that it doesn't seem to serve any wider or greater purpose and sure. so therefore it, it should be called gratuitous. And, and so I would challenge that because um, the fact that we don't know what the greater purpose of some suffering is doesn't mean there is no greater purpose. And so therefore we have no justification to call it gratuitous. Could I ask a clarifying question before you guys get too, too much further and I forget. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Yeah. All right. Um, would it make a difference in either one of your uh, arguments that you're making right now, if what Jordan had said was apparent gratuitous suffering, because if we are suffering, like a, for instance, a mother suffers in childbirth, but she knows that suffering is a part of childbirth and she has decided to go through that because she wants the reward. But if someone is beating on you and you have no idea why that's happening, that is a form of suffering in and of itself that you are being tormented without the knowledge of what's going on, even if there's a good purpose. So would apparent suffering still qualify as a type of gratuitous suffering when information could be given that might alleviate that part of the suffering? And would that solve your problem, uh, uh, feel with it? Well, um, it actually isn't going to solve the problem because apparent gratuitous suffering is, again, a vacuous concept because the fact that we don't know what the purpose of the suffering is um, does not justify us calling it apparently 
gratuitous. But we could be told what the suffering is. We could be informed and therefore remove the suffering part, the emotional part of it, and that would just leave the pain part of it, right? So the fact that we have to go through a thing without knowing, without consent, and without knowing why the suffering is, it feels gratuitous to us, does it not? Yeah, and 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 my whole point is that whether something feels gratuitous or not to us is not relevant to the question of whether or not that gratuitous suffering has implications for God's benevolence. And if even if I'm not even if I'm told why I'm suffering, that doesn't that doesn't stop the suffering. That just makes me understand the suffering, but I'm still suffering. Um, I mean, it certainly and, makes it easier to bear. I mean, it seems to lessen it usually, at least. Yeah, it could. Definitely. Yeah. yeah um, I'm, I'm suffering because the doctor is doing surgery on me, and I know that I wanted the surgery, and that's a part of it. But if I just feel the pain of surgery and not know what's going on, and someone could have told me, they drugged me, they made sure that I didn't know what would happen, and then they left me awake during surgery, and uh, I'm suffering I understand your point, Phil, that they're doing a good thing by doing the surgery, but they're also they also did a bad thing by leaving me uninformed. And therefore, it becomes suffering, and that apparent gratuitous suffering is a type of gratuitous suffering because that could have been alleviated. Yeah, so the question is, the, the issue is between... Um, objectively gratuitous suffering and subjectively gratuitous suffering. And I do thank what? you. I'm going to go ahead and mute again. I just, I wanted to see if that could clarify. It clearly didn't. So <laughs> I will go back in my hole. <laughs> well, I think maybe, maybe the problem is um, I wasn't attempting to make a deductive argument. I was making an inductive argument. So I, I, I think I said that I don't think that the logical problem of evil holds up because all you have to do to defeat a logical problem is show any possibility that it's otherwise, right? So I'm not making a logical, like, like a deductive logical argument. I'm saying that this suffering appears gratuitous to all, it, it looks gratuitous. It appears gratuitous. I can't, I don't have absolute knowledge, so I cannot know with perfect certainty that it's gratuitous. However, all the evidence I have points towards it being gratuitous. And so if I'm going to believe it is not, then I'm going to need evidence to point the other way. And lacking such evidence, I'm justified in going with the evidence I have. Yeah, um, and I would deny that. I would deny that the that, that the, the fact that you seem, you perceive that there's evidence that the suffering is gratuitous is inconclusive and, and does, it does not follow that the suffering really is gratuitous. Um, I'm just making a probabilistic get, uh, I'm basically, uh, I, I can't be certain, but why do you not think that you can make inductive arguments? Like, do you require deductive certainty to believe anything? Well, I, yeah, I do. But, but the problem is that if I'm going to make an inductive argument, I have to, I have, I have to address the possibility that there is counter evidence or that there is, there are counter examples to what I'm observing and the fact that I may not know why those counterexamples exist doesn't tell me that they don't exist. So the, the evidence of, of just observing a bunch of suffering and not understanding why it's occurring, that doesn't contribute to an inductive conclusion um, that says 
all this suffering is 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 gratuitous um, because I I don't know that I, I I haven't been given enough information to draw that conclusion. You keep saying no. I'm not saying I know that. I'm saying that I believe that based on some evidence, right. and I think I have good evidence towards that belief. I'm not saying well, I know it. I don't need to. Know. Who cares if I know it? And what I'm saying is that what you say counts as evidence does not count as evidence. Can I? Can I? That's the point. Okay, I just want to kind of come in here. I think this will help, but let me understand that. So I get that you're making an inductive argument and okay, that's great. That requires evidence that indicates it's more probable than not that this is gratuitous suffering. Mm -hmm. Now is, is your evidence, I think where the contrast between you and Phil's coming in is you're counting as evidence, like how it seems to you. You're, you're almost taking a phenomenal conservatism position. Like things are how they probably are how they seem. So if they seem like it's gratuitous, that counts as evidence that it probably is. Or do you have something beyond, and Phil's coming back and saying, well, seemings aren't evidence. Am I getting the contrast right? Because so the distance between some good coming, so the example I gave was a rodent dying underground painfully, an excruciating pain, uh, and nobody knows, it has no effect on anything, and it's an immediate environment. It collapses and just sits there in the desert for centuries, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So that was suffering, and in order for uh, Phil's point to be correct, that suffering must lead to some greater good at some point, right? Yeah. And my point is there's no plausible link between that thing and a greater good. That, that the link would have to be so esoteric, so arcane, so foreign to any human understanding that I would say the burden of proof is on someone who's going to assert that is in fact good. I'm not saying I know with certainty. I cannot disprove that it has no good, but you are asking me to, you're making a, a, an enormous claim and I'm just asking for evidence. And if I, absent that evidence, why on earth should I believe you? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Phil, how would you respond to his analogy? Yeah. What, what, what claim am I making? What, what enormous claim so, am I making? So the claim is pick, if you don't like the rodent example, pick some other example of some seemingly senseless act, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is that um, all I require is that the way it seems through careful consideration, I've, I've looked at it, I've thought as hard as I can about it, and I just don't see not just any path, but any plausible path at all to that to a good, right? And so that would tell me that there probably isn't. And so you require, however, that this instance of this rodent or whatever subject you want, uh, it's excruciating pain led to good. You require that. If that's not true, then you're then you failed. So that has to lead to a good. So I'm asking you to draw me, draw the line. I, I don't require that it has to lead to good. All I require is that it is that there can be a purpose that we're not aware of. And so the fact that we're not aware of the purpose doesn't mean that that purpose doesn't exist. I, um, again, but, I'm not making a deductive argument, man. I'm making an inductive argument. Well, I'm saying it, it probably is this way. But, here, but here's what you're doing. Um, and what I saw you doing on Saturday was um, that you were, you were giving me reasons why a compassionate God probably doesn't exist. Because you said, if a loving and compassionate God does exist, there would be very little gratuitous suffering. That is a deductive argument, because the argument goes like this. Here's the form of the argument. It's not inductive, it's deductive. The, 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 the argument goes like this. 
if a loving, compassionate God exists, there would be very little gratuitous suffering. There is not very little gratuitous suffering. In fact, there's a lot of gratuitous suffering. Therefore, a loving, compassionate God does not exist. That's, that's, what, I that's, what, I'm, that's what I see you trying to support here. Well, that's not what I said. Uh, what I said was, and I actually took a paragraph to emphasize this. What I said was, the last two points of my argument were, there is probably, or if you prefer, apparently, very little or, or a lot of gratuitous suffering. Therefore, God probably doesn't exist. Okay. I'm not saying definitively. I don't know definitively. I can't, I can't, I don't see a way I could possibly know. But that doesn't mean I, I'm not allowed to make a judgment based on the evidence I have. Yeah. Um, I, out of, out of so so oh. you're saying if a loving, a loving, compassionate God probably doesn't exist because a lot of gratuitous suffering probably exists. Yes. So it's, but it's the same argument. You know, the, the conclusion that, that a loving, compassionate God probably doesn't exist does not follow from, from the premise that you're presenting. So whether you want to say probably or definitely doesn't really change, doesn't, doesn't solve right. the problem. Do you, do you agree that if there is probably a lot of gratuitous suffering that that are you saying that would have no impact on on this loving God's existence? Yes. Yeah. It has no impact on the probability of, of a loving, compassionate God. Frankly, existence. I have no idea how you get there. Like that's just bizarre. Well, I'm the, the way that I get there is that, that it simply doesn't follow logically. It doesn't follow logically that, the okay. fact that there is a lot of gratuitous if, suffering in the if world. There, let's look, just go basically. If there is gratuitous suffering, let, let's say there's a ton. There's a ginormous amount of gratuitous suffering. Does that impact the probability that a loving God exists? No. Okay, so you you just reject that gratuitous suffering matters at all. Yeah, because and it's not that I personally reject it. What I'm saying is that it does not follow logically. It okay, doesn't so follow logically that there's a that, that there's a lot of gratuitous suffering, that 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 lends credence or support. To the to the conclusion that a loving, compassionate God probably doesn't exist. It, okay, it simply so you, is not a logical. It does. Okay. It's not. A, it's not logically coherent. That's so. so you think a loving God, a, a powerful loving God, would be such that they would wish or desire there to be gratuitous suffering? No, I didn't say wish or desire. Well, I said okay, that a so loving, God, compassionate God can allow gratuitous suffering to exist, and that does not impugn His compassion or love. Okay, so let's say uh, I'm not sure how that how allowing a state of affairs where there's suffering that serves no purpose that God could stop without without harming any other good. Basically, there's this much suffering, but if there was this much, the good would not go down. And so God has it within its power and knowledge to reduce suffering without reducing good. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at with gratuitous with me so far. Yep. Okay. So if to bring it to human terms so that we can focus on a single example, let's say there's a surgeon and a surgeon could do a surgery such that the recovery time for a person would be weak and it would be virtually painless. Or they could do it a different way, in which case it's too weak and excruciatingly painful, but they still get cured. You're saying that the second one is just as good as the first one. No, no difference. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Okay, well, then that's gratuitous we're, suffering, we're, and we're, he's choosing not to reduce it. So okay, how you, is that you, different? You've just changed the subject. You change the subject from God allowing gratuitous suffering to a human being allowing gratuitous suffering. Okay. There may be a moral principle 
that says that if the human being allows gratuitous suffering, then they are morally culpable for that. That may be a, a moral principle. It may be a real moral principle. It may even be consistent with biblical principles. But God is not bound by the moral principles that are imposed on human beings. God is not a human being. He is the author of life. If he exists, he's, he would be the author of life. And therefore, the moral principles that apply to human beings do not apply to God. So when God does so, it, it's fine. Okay, well, then you and I are just talking about different things of good. You just have a completely, utterly alien version of what good is. And so when you say the word good, you mean something different than what I mean. And so, of course, you're going to disagree. What I mean is a is a being, in this context, the relevant part is I mean a being that would prefer well-being and not prefer suffering. If your God is totally fine preferring suffering, then feel free to worship this entity. I, I, I'm going to I'm trying to be as respectful as I can. This seems like a really bad entity. But if that's the one you want to worship, feel free. But it has nothing to do with the thing I'm talking about. Let me. Uh, so, Phil, I'm going to I'll let you get the, the last response to this. I do want to. I, I, do you have like what are your time constraints? What are you, are you looking for about two hours, two and a half hours? You know, I, I don't have any time constraints. I the only constraints uh, that I would have is are that of mercy. <laughs> mercy. Okay, okay. And Jordan and David, do you guys do you guys have time any time constraints I should be aware of or just so uh, that I'm, I'm yours for collapse. as long uh, as you want. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Jordan, do I, you I could probably make it like two hours tops before I follow follow up. Okay, so I I just, uh, I'm going to let Phil have the last response. Um, I want to ask one quick question for you about what you're saying, then we'll move on to the hiddenness thing. But um, so as you answer what Jordan just said there, one thing I would like to ask, because uh, for me, I, I would kind of agree with Jordan myself, because God is kind of the grounding of these moral principles, right? So uh, what are moral principles, like the principle of life preservation, the principle of truth? The, these are values that God has as part of his moral nature. Um, so like, wouldn't the moral principles apply to him in that they're values? Or do you see it operating differently? Like, what's your take on that? Well, so what's happening here um, is that that I think Jordan is applying a moral principle to God whereas he has no basis for saying that this moral principle applies to God, even if it just, even if it applies to human beings. So there, there, there are two kinds of moral principles. There are, there are moral principles that apply to God and human beings, apply to all moral beings. Okay. And there are moral principles that apply to human beings, but do not apply to God. I and reject that assertion. A perfect example of that is murder. So murder is a moral evil, and God has decreed that murder is a moral evil. But murder is when one human being kills another human being without proper moral justification. Um, now, if that's the case, then it, God cannot murder because he's not a human being. Mm -hmm. So there are some moral principles that apply to human beings, but don't apply to God. And the fact that that God can take life arbitrarily or he can take life based on his own authority as the author of life does not impugn his character and, or compassion and does not mean that he's not a good God. He's the so, author of life. So he, he has the right to do whatever with life that he wants to. And so if he's the author of life, he also has the right to allow suffering he even has the right to allow gratuitous suffering because in the Christian worldview, 
man is fallen, the whole world is in an abnormal state, and there's going to be a whole lot of suffering that God didn't originally plan on. And but he knew that suffering would exist simply because of the 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 natural consequences of the fall and that how the fall is impacted uh how the fall impacts the entire universe the entire world the, all of man all of biological life and the whole nine yards so 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 I, i'm looking for a, a reason to believe that god is is obligated to to obey a moral principle that says that he cannot allow any suffering that is that is greater than what's necessary to achieve whatever his purposes might be i don't i don't see that moral principle being defended anywhere here okay so see. phil what you've done is you've taken one of the off ramps that i offered at the end i said that one of the ways the problem of evil can be defeated is if your god is not a morally good god and by morally good, I mean a standard that I would accept and humans would accept. Now, you want to give God a different standard, a standard that for any other being would be abhorrently evil. If that's the God you want to worship, if you want to avoid this dilemma by making your God into a sadistic demon, then feel free, man. Have him murder people all day. That's fine. It's your worship. Do what you want. Just my don't follow is, that God's example. <laughs> like, my, then my we'll have problems. Is, my point is that that's not what's happening here. I'm not making God a sadistic demon. What I'm saying is that, that your criteria for judging God's goodness is a human criteria and does not necessarily apply to God, and that we cannot apply our human criterias for good to God. And so now okay, so the think... issue of lying is a separate issue, and that's different. I'm... It's completely so... different. We because, just have different conceptions what? of what morality is, and Fair. so we're never going Fair to enough. agree. So, so worship your God, however you want to worship. We should move to the next argument. Yeah, I, th I, th I think, I think we kind of get what you're saying there, and stuff. So, okay, great. So let's let's move on to your kind of thing on the hiddenness of God. What did so that was David Johnson's argument. Well, um, what did you? I have several pages on the problem of evil. Do you want me to just not? <sighs> present those you, dude you and i have completely different concepts of what good is and so that is like a foundational fundamental disagreement there's no way that you and i are ever going to come to an agreement if if what if in your mind god can literally arbitrarily for their own reasons just kill someone and it fosters no greater good they just felt like doing it because they're god and that's cool then you and i are th that is just you are speaking a foreign language you're speaking a you're speaking concepts that that have no meaning you're babbling and so there's no point in continuing the conversation because we just fundamentally disagree. Actually, I would uh, I wouldn't mind hearing some of his yeah, other voice. Yes, All right. Honestly, I'm going to get some water. You guys talk about his being I, that he worships, and I'll be back later. I, th I actually think, Phil, now I'm a poor philosopher, so bear this in mind. You, what you're saying might be philosophically correct. Um, so I, I have been trying to follow uh, this. I understand Jordan's uh, reaction. I think that 99% uh, of all atheists, whether they're philosophers or not, would agree with Jordan. I agree with Jordan on a very emotional level. But philosophically, you are saying that God is a substantively different kind of being and therefore we have no framework for measuring 
whether his judgments are moral for his kind of being or not. It would be a little bit like um, an earthworm trying to judge a human by their understanding of morality. And so it simply wouldn't apply. Is, is that, is, is that close to what you're saying? Um, yes and no. Um, it, it is true that God, if he exists, um, his ways are higher than our ways. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But I don't believe that, um, that there is, that there are, there are two standards of morality, one that applies to God and one that applies to human beings. What I'm saying is that there are some moral principles that apply to human beings, but do not apply to God. And I want to make sure that, that I clarify, um, we're, uh, Jordan was talking about what seems to be gratuitous suffering, what appears to be gratuitous suffering in the absence of any additional information that would let us know that it may not be gratuitous. Um, and, and my point is that, that God can allow what seems to us to be gratuitous sufferings if he wants to, that that's his prerogative because he's the author of life. He is the creator of the universe. If he exists, you know, I, I'm not going to assume that he exists because I know I'm speaking to people who don't believe in him, but, um, but God, if he exists would be the creator, the author of life, and he would have absolute authority over all of life. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to violate his own moral principles, his own moral law. It just means that he is not necessarily bound by every moral law that applies to human beings. I and so when Jordan says that I believe in it, that, that, that I don't believe in a good God, that I believe in some kind of sadistic demon, um, that's a that's a category mistake. Sure. Um, is, is, is your God, just, though, just as you understand? David, just, just to clarify, so, I think I can understand what, what Phil's saying is, look, more, God doesn't have moral obligations or duties kind of thing, but he does act consistently with his own moral values. I right. Think that's own moral what, nature. Right. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, go, go ahead, David. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I was just going to ask if God did, if you felt like God did have some kind of moral um law unto himself and if so uh in your if he violated that would that then be wrong or could we hold him uh accountable for violating his own moral nature yes we we can and should hold god accountable for violating his moral nature and what i what i state in all of my books well not all of them but a lot of them is that God cannot violate his own moral nature. Um, and that's why uh, we had the discussion about God, whether God can lie. Because my argument in that discussion was that God cannot violate his own moral nature and that a lie is a violation of his own moral nature. But that is in a different category from whether or not human beings cause other human beings to suffer and whether they have an obligation to minimize suffering as much as possible. God does not have an obligation to minimize suffering as much as possible because that moral principle only applies to human beings. If he wants to allow all the suffering in the world, he has that right. And that does not make him a moral monster. So is, is this kind of an is this kind of a, a an argument of God brought us into the world and He can take us out uh, without yeah. any yeah. explanation for why or how He did it? 
Yeah. Okay. I, I look. He, I he's can not obligated to explain anything to us. Right. He's not obligated to justify what himself. He's not obligated right. to explain himself. So I'm I'm familiar with this this line of thought, and this is um, this is you know a certain a certain type of um, Christian thought that is uh, not new. I think a lot of people would find it. Uh, a lot of non Christians find this particular theological idea difficult to swallow, but I recognize it. And so, uh, and, and I'm not saying that God is not good. I'm not saying that God can violate his own. No, perfect I, moral I get nature. that. I get when that. you say you, God is good, you mean a different thing than what I mean when I say God is good. That they're well, just two different words. I think it's because you're measuring God's goodness by human standards. Yep. And I'm measuring God's goodness by his own standards. Which is so, a meaningless thing. Well, but, you know, whatever, man. Like, <laughs> If God has a moral nature and he cannot violate his own moral nature, then it's full of meaning. It's, it's, it's the no, whole point. It's utterly meaningless. It means nothing to me. This okay. God can have whatever internal justification he wants. If he's going around inflicting suffering for his own purposes, then that God is, by any definition I would recognize, evil. If you wish to worship this evil being, rock on. Please do not follow his example. I got to be honest, this kind of rhetoric is terrifying. This is the kind of Christianity that keeps me awake at night. Like, <laughs> but it's but it, to, it to to say that I believe in a God who is evil is is invalid. It's you, false. Sorry, you don't believe in a God way, who is evil. Would, by the way, I, I would define it. I can't use okay. your words because they mean nothing to me. And, and so that's the way I would define it. That's the reason that I'm making the point that the way you define good and evil is based on human standards. And human standards do not apply to God. He is not obligated to follow our own subjective, arbitrary, personal human standards. He follows his own moral nature. He follows his own moral nature if he has one. And if he does have a moral nature that's perfect, he will not violate that moral nature. So nothing that God does can ever be yeah. evil. Now God you may by definition is good. Everything he oh, does is good. No. It doesn't matter what he did. It's good. Can we move on? Okay. Okay. So yeah, sure. uh, Phil, you you mentioned. Um, well, okay. So Phil, you mentioned. Did you cover all the points on the problem of evil, um, or are you happy to move on? Okay. To the well, I'm, I'm going to be as calm and respectful as I can right now. If we continue talking about the problem of evil, I am leaving. So you can continue talking if you wish. You'll be doing it without me. So are we going to move to something else, or am I leaving? I guess we will move on to the hiddenness of God, Is if that's okay with everyone. Uh, does anyone have a strong objection? Okay. I mean, I'm I happy to leave. I don't have a... I, don't, I, I would like to keep Jordan around, and maybe if we can get through some of the other stuff, and then after that we have time, we could swing that's back true. by. And, okay. uh and yeah, then, that's that's a that's a fair idea actually because yeah. I know Jordan has to go in two hours, but you guys are good, so we could come back and stay after the two hours mark. So so let's move on then, to, out of fairness, to the hiddenness of God argument. Like, what were some of your points, Phil, that you wanted to discuss with David's case on the hiddenness there? Um, okay, um, my basic idea is that divine hiddenness is incoherent and it fails as a defeater of theism. Um. That I am unaware of God's existence does not mean he doesn't exist. The claim that if God exists, he must reveal himself personally to me is unwarranted and begs the question. Um, he may not care whether I believe in him or have knowledge of his existence or not. 
Now, we're talking about the existence of God. Now, we may have a different discussion if we're talking about the existence of the Christian God. But if you're just talking about the existence of God, period, then he he, he may not care whether I believe in, in him or not. I was speaking and the fact specifically. That I don't believe that, in him or don't have yeah. any knowledge of his existence has no bearing on the question of his existence. Right. I was speaking specifically of the Christian God, uh, though. Okay. And I, and I, I thought that I had made that clear in, in the debate. And if I didn't, uh, my sincere apologies. But yeah, okay. the, the Christian, the God who wants to be known, who wants to build a bridge between uh, himself and humanity because of our sin, the God that okay. wants to save, that wants us to believe in him, that's that's the God that I try to to highlight because I know that there are many many so God concepts. The point that he may not care whether I believe him or not, then that doesn't apply to the argument uh, from the Christian God. Mm -hmm. But Basically, the other the, the other points would restrict the kind of nature God could have, and so. But you're completely right that if God had a different nature such that he doesn't care that we know he's around, well then divine hidden doesn't apply to that. Right. Kind of I don't. For instance, the uh, a deist God. I, I would never argue divine hiddenness because he doesn't care. So he could be hidden okay. or not. You know? Well, what, what I'm what I'm going to say, uh, in addition to this, it will apply to the Christian God, okay. the God who wants us wants to have a relationship with us. Um, mm -hmm. And because and so the first point is that no one has ever shown that God is actually hidden. Um, if there are valid reasons that God exists then he is not hidden from anyone because those reasons are available to everyone. If that's the case, all we have is ignorance, not hiddenness. Um, and David said, if someone does not know that God exists, God is hidden to them. Um, but there's a big difference between God being hidden to you and being hidden from you. Um, being hidden to you is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is if God is hidden from you. God may be hidden as far as you personally are concerned, but that doesn't mean he's hidden in an objective sense. So being, an being hidden in an objective sense is required for your objection to succeed. And I haven't heard anyone show that he is hidden from humanity or from any individuals in an objective sense. Um, God could reveal his existence in three ways. A, what the universe looks like and what man looks like. He could reveal his existence like that because his creation, if he exists, would reflect his existence and would reflect some of his attributes. The second way, B, is to communicate to mankind publicly using language and reason, which is what the Bible claims to be. C, he could communicate to individuals privately. Now, A and B are public and C is private, and that and C being private is unreliable. Why? Because you may perceive something as God revealing himself to you privately, but you could be deceived. Therefore, in C, the hiddenness problem is unresolved. You could say that God could reveal himself privately to an individual in such a way that, that is infallible, and the human being would not be deceived. But there's no way to know that such a revelation is trustworthy or not. The individual could be convinced that the revelation is reliable when it's not. It could be a demon deceiving you into thinking it's God, or it could be indigestion. 
That's why public revelation is the only one that's reliable. And if there is evidence for it, the hiddenness problem fails. The evidence is available to anyone who bothers to investigate it. It is not withheld from anyone. Okay. Um, may I respond to some of that? Sure. Okay. All right. I don't want to interrupt your, your thought. No, that's, that's, that's all. That's all I had on hiddenness. Okay. Uh, that's fine. I, uh, understand i can agree with some of that in principle but as far as god not being actively hidden from anyone that simply flies in the face of uh, other theologians who uh would disagree uh and so much of the argument uh from uh, of hiddenness is a back and forth between uh atheist and christian with the christian providing reasons for why God is actively hiding from that person. So for, for that type of theologian, my point stands. Uh, in that case, God is, in fact, actively hiding. Um, now, for those who don't take that uh, position, then we must uh, carry on to uh, your your further points. So as far as God having already revealed himself, uh, I would say that uh, it is possible for a God to have revealed himself, but inadequately. Uh, so uh, he's he's there. It's, it's a little bit like uh, one of those paintings uh, that used to be so popular and it just looks like a bunch of black and white squiggly lines but you know if you look at it long enough it resolves into a ship or you know something and and people would stare at them for a while and they would say oh i see it i have never seen the picture in one of those by the way but they would say no it's right there and they would try to reveal it and i i could never see it and so uh, it may be a beautiful and clever picture of a ship. I don't deny it, but it is an inadequate picture for me. Part of that might be because I have visual problems that might keep me from being able to resolve an image like that. But if you want me to see the ship, you've got to present it to me in a way that I can see it. So you can't present it in a generic way that may not be resolvable to specific individuals and then just say, well, he, he, he left you the evidence. Um, so that's where uh, special revelation comes in. Um, it's in, in, in fact, in the general revelation of, well, I guess we would call scripture special revelation, but in the public revelation, we'll say of the Bible within that, Throughout that, God is popping up, revealing himself specifically to people because they didn't see him <laughs> in the other ways. And when he wanted them for whatever, uh, you know, his good reasons were, he would reveal himself in that way. That indicates to me that God and the, and, and the writers of the Bible are aware that not everyone is going to be able to see God when they look at a, a cloud or a mountain vista. Not everyone is going to understand even, um, you know, a very complicated literary work 
like the Hebrew scriptures and and further. And so there are further recourses that God has to reveal himself. And so I don't think it is uh, improper for me to suggest that even if God has revealed himself publicly so that some percentage of the population can see him clearly, there are clearly some percentage of the population that can't see him that way. And we're simply asking for him to do the same for us as he has done for others. He has specially revealed himself too, because that's what it's going to take for us. Uh, so yes, revealing great, but if he doesn't reveal adequately, then it's still a form of hiding. Okay, so what would your what would your argument be to support the proposition that God has not revealed himself adequately? Because I don't know he's there. And I, and I can only, I can speak for me here. I can say generically there are millions of people who don't know he's there, who don't, who simply have, they've looked at the things that Christians have said, that many have gone even further and they don't believe it. I was a preacher for uh, a number of years, so I don't know how much of my background you know. Um, I was very much, uh, uh, you know, deeply embedded uh, in the church and Christianity and faith, uh, spirituality. Um, and, uh, so that's, I mean, to this day, theology is, uh, I find it fascinating and I like debating it, <laughs> but, um, that said, um, I don't, I don't see God outside of intellectual arguments. I don't, uh, I don't feel that spiritual connection. I can't say that I ever have. Um, and when I, when I just look outside of the theophilosophical arguments of Christianity, I don't see him. And, you know, for a long time, I, I begged God to show himself in a, in a way that I could see uh, and understand. Because so many people around me in that environment claimed to have had that. So I didn't. And I wanted it very much. So I can say for, for generically for millions of people, they don't see him. That's the evidence. But specifically for me, I don't see him. I didn't see him when I was fervently looking. Uh, and so uh, that that would be the evidence that he is he is hidden. So I'll let Phil hey. come back. And I have a couple questions for both of you after after Phil responds. But go ahead, Phil, and then I'll ask my questions. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I would say, you said a lot of things there, David, and I, I'm trying to remember all of them. Um, but the, the fact that some people don't see God or don't see the evidence of his existence or don't understand that there is something called general revelation where our observations of the world around us and the nature of man can point to his existence. The fact that some people don't see that, it does not follow from that that God is hidden and that, that, that he hasn't revealed himself adequately. Um, people can suppress the, 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 their perception and their understanding of God's existence, and if they suppress it, that doesn't mean that he hasn't revealed himself adequately. How do they suppress it? I mean, it's, can, it's, it sounds like you're saying, well, they could see it, 
but they actively chose not, they want to not see it. And that's the only way they don't see it. Um, not, not necessarily, but, right. but the, the point I'm trying to make is that the fact that we don't see it, the fact that, that person X does not see the evidence of God's existence, it does not follow from that, that he has not revealed himself adequately. It simply does not logically. What follow. do you mean by adequately? Because yeah, I, we might have I, a, we I might have a different. Uh, Adic- well, what you're you're the one that brought up the word adequately. Okay, so let me tell you what I mean adequately. Tell, uh, then. Tell me. No, 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 that's fair. Um, because you're right, I did bring it up. Uh, it's not adequate uh, if the instruction doesn't impart to the person the information in a way that they can understand. So um, Einstein can. Uh, give accurate physics to a four-year-old, but it's not adequate <laughs> uh, because the four-year-old, four-year-old doesn't understand it. It has to be broken down in very different ways. Not that some certain complicated ideas couldn't be broken down that way, but Einstein lecturing, uh, you know, in a college and you know just giving that lecture to a four-year-old is probably not adequate. It's a good explanation. It's not adequate for getting that to the four-year-old. And so, once again, if you want to show a picture to a blind man, uh, you might have to do something a little bit different so that they can understand and see, uh, kind of like the the image thing that I that I gave you. So, so, so I understand. I understand what you mean by adequate. Um, and it was pretty much the same thing that that I thought you meant by adequate. You know, so okay. you communicated that very well. Um, and, and I would repeat my original, my original observation that the fact that someone does not see something, it does not follow from that, that it was not revealed to them adequately. It could be revealed to them adequately, but that person may not be seeing it because there, there's some blockage and the blockage is not God's responsibility. The blockage is man's responsibility. Okay, so before we run out of time, this is so interesting, that part. If you could just expound on that, uh, I, I, would, I would love to hear that without interrupting you at all, because I've, I've heard this a lot, and the conversation never ends well. Uh, and so I just I want to hear it from you, because you, you strike me as someone very reasonable uh, and well-studied. How... What are what are the blockages that you have in mind that you think that people like me might be putting up? Um, I don't I don't necessarily have any specific blockages in mind. What all I'm saying is that it is possible for us to put up blockages, whether we know what they are or not. It could. Can be you give me an example? A lot of different people. Right. Well, um, can well, you give me an example? I'll, I'll give you an example from Romans chapter one. Um, Romans chapter one says that people have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. Okay, now, what does that mean? That is not a mean. Go ahead, Phil. No, I is, mean I know what I know. Romans one. I'm asking for a, what does that mean in practical terms? Well, first of all, what I want to say is that doesn't mean that everybody who suppresses the truth of the truth is doing so for the same reasons and is doing so in unrighteousness. But that is an example 
of how some people can suppress the truth. No, I'm asking, um, what is it, how do they suppress the truth? What does it mean to suppress the truth? I don't understand I, that phrase. Okay, so so David, I think my, because I said I had two questions, one mm -hmm. one for you and one for Phil. I th think this might get him to, might get Phil to give you his answer on this. So, Phil, I, on the debate, I kind of mentioned my own notion about being a real seeker. And I never defined what that means, right? So I just gave that term. Um, I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are. So I have three criteria that the human does in response to be a real seeker. So, so number one, they're just sincerely open-minded to truth. Whatever that, whatever that truth is, they're sincerely open-minded to it. Secondly, they actively seek the truth. Now, I qualify that by saying to the best of their ability within reason. Um, you know, they're, I'm not saying that someone has to become a scholar or get a PhD or study every minute of every day. That's that's ridiculous. And then thirdly, upon discovery of that truth, you are willing to obey and or follow that religious truth in whatever way is appropriate for that truth. That's it. That's what a real seeker is. So what's your what's your thoughts on, on that field? Does that maybe does that make sense to you? And in answer to David's question, could it be that some people are not living up to those criteria that would explain what's, uh, I don't know how he phrased it, that they're deficient or something? I don't know what David said, but go ahead. Me or Dave, David? Uh, for you, I'm interested on your take on that real secret notion. How, how do you think of it? Um, I uh, I think that that it is a valid principle to say that anyone who seeks God, God can be found by that person if they sincerely are seeking him. Um, and it's possible for people to suppress the truth. It's possible for people to block the information that is available to them, not because they may not be seeking, but because they may not be seeking the right way. Because if if someone says, I'm not going to believe God unless he just suddenly materializes in front of me and just shows up and I can actually see him and talk to him, then I don't think I have any rationale to believe in him. Well, well what, would the, what would the right way be? Because you're talking to someone specifically who's who's most likely, whatever list of right ways you've got, have, have done that. And the audience is full of people who were once very sincere Christians for a long mm -hmm. time who have probably done that. And so what did we miss? What, what, is the, what is the right way of seeking that we would have found? Well, I don't know specifically in each individual's case what well, the right in, way I mean, an example, because you, you, you are throwing out terms, and I appreciate I, it. These are theological, these are biblical terms, suppressing the truth. I'm saying I don't even know what that means. Um, I, I can't think of an example of a truth that I uh, hear, that I encounter, and that I somehow suppress. I don't know what that means. I wouldn't know how. Okay, so I'm, uh, I, I'm not. I'm not assuming that everyone who doesn't believe. I'm not automatically assuming that they have suppressed it. I'm saying that suppression is one way that they can fail to believe. I'm not saying that that's the truth. That that's the case in every situation. But there is. It's. I, I just gave you an example of someone who is seeking someone or seeking God in the wrong way by saying, "If God exists, He has to appear to me physically, right in front of me." 
And I he think, has to talk to me and prove I think a lot of yeah, I'm, I'm I think a lot of people get there I'm not, though. I'm not finished. I'm not yeah, finished. Phil, Phil finish, and I have a question for you, and yeah. then I want to get just Jordan's take, and then we're going right. to move on to the next. But, right, but it, this has been said a couple of times. So I, it it requires some clarification um, because there's a big audience hearing it, and I know a lot of my audience are, yeah. and they, they won't want to say this. A lot of people get to that point where they're saying, "Well, I just I would." I need an appearance of the risen Jesus then like his disciples had or like Paul had, but they didn't start there. They, they tried everything, did everything, tried all of the ways that people said were right ways. And they just ended up getting to that place. People seldom start there. So, uh, I think it is just a, a touch ad hominem to, to say, well, you're just demanding that God poof uh, uh, and and show up to you is not really how it started. But I, no, I would say that someone who gets there, that's probably not as unreasonable of a of an ask as you make it sound, since that is exactly what he did in the Bible. Okay, so, so okay, I, I'm not saying that that is the way it always starts. I'm simply giving you an example of of the wrong way one of the wrong ways to seek him now because people will say if he doesn't show up in my room right now i'm not going to believe in him or i can't believe in him now whether they started there or not um doesn't matter that's still an example of the wrong way to seek him um if 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 jesus says in the gospels um you saw you believe in me because you see me and you've seen the scars and you've touched everything. And you, so now you know that I believe. But he said, blessed are those who don't see and still believe. And so what he's implying there is that there are ways that we can come to the knowledge of God that don't necessarily involve physical appearance. So why did right he show up for Paul? Don't, don't yeah. ask him questions. Let him finish. And, 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 but it's, it's, and it's only way, fair to be able to clarify some of this. I mean, I'm, well, I'm being very, I, I'm being I'm, very, I'm very polite. I'm going to clarify it. If okay. you let me, I still have more to say. So I want you to let me clarify it. Okay. You asked me, what are the right ways? What are some examples of the right ways to seek him? And the, the, the answer is going to seem a little odd, but one of the right ways to seek him, not not, and this is not the only right way, but one of the right ways to seek him is to avoid the wrong ways of seeking him. One of the right ways to get to a valid conclusion in philosophy is to avoid fallacies and avoid, avoid the wrong ways to try to get to a, to a conclusion in philosophy. So um, one of the, what, some of the wrong ways are things that are not going to give you the knowledge that you seek and and so avoiding some of those wrong ways are going to give you the knowledge that you seek. The right way to seek God, one of the right ways to seek God, and there's probably a family of them, is one of them is to study the evidence, to study Scripture, to see whether or not Scripture hangs together, to see whether or not it's rational, see whether or not it is, it is historically valid, historically verified. Um, the, uh, another right way is to examine the arguments for God's existence and apply logical reasoning to those arguments to see whether or not they are valid and whether or not they succeed. That's another right way of doing it. Um, so there, there's, there are tons of right ways to seek God. 
And the fact that there are some wrong ways to seek God doesn't mean that God is actually hidden from us or that he's deliberately hidden from us. Now, I want to I want to address something else that's very important that you mentioned earlier. Okay, and that great. is that there are some theologians who, who claim that God deliberately hides himself to human beings and that that happens, that there's examples of that in Scripture. Um, I would argue that the examples of that in Scripture are a form of God's judgment, that he is hiding himself from people who have already chosen not to believe and who are already not open to believing. And his attitude is, okay, if you're not open to believing in me, then fine. If you don't want me to reveal myself to you, I won't. And that is a form, that's a valid form of judgment. But the fact that some theologians believe that God deliberately hides from people without any proper justification like judgment, um, that that doesn't really mean anything to me. I, I don't accept the word of every theologian out there. Um, I simply maintain that that God is available, that his, the knowledge of God is available to anyone who cares to seek him. And if they're not finding him, then change the way you seek him and keep trying until you succeed. Because, because there, there is a promise in the Bible that God can be found by anyone who seeks him. Okay. And if that's the case, then I consider that a defeater to the whole idea of God's hiddenness. I haven't heard an argument that establishes that he is objectively hidden from anybody. Okay, so I'm going to step in. So, uh, because we, I want to make sure Jordan has enough time to to give his take on the two arguments. But Jordan, I know that you were trying to say something on the hiddenness of God a while back. So I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, please make it like two or three minutes if you can. But what what's your take on the hiddenness, and then we'll move on if you want to say something on that. Sure. So. It, it's frustrating because I hear this rhetoric from Christians all the time. And the only thing I hear when you tell me this is that I'm a liar, that that's the only way, the way I can take it. Because I am telling you, Phil, that I am trying as hard as I can to find God. I have looked. I used to believe. I would love to believe again. I would vastly prefer to live in a world where there's a benevolent deity, not the deity you believe in, but a benevolent one, uh, that looks over everything. I would love for that to be true. And I, I just don't find the evidence. God, if he is omnipotent, and if he is omniscient, or at least very powerful, and very knowledgeable, knows what would convince me. And he has the ability to give it to me, and is choosing not to. The only thing I can conclude from that is that God doesn't want a relationship with me. If he exists, he doesn't want a relationship with me. When you point, though, to Romans 1, and it says that you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, or you say, well, it, if you haven't found him, you're not honestly seeking. How else am I supposed to take that? Never that said animal? that. Okay, well, I'm telling you I'm honestly seeking, and I'm not finding him. And so that means that because of that, God has not revealed himself adequately to me because I am looking as hard as I can, and I'm not finding him. And adequate means it is not sufficient to get to the goal of me believing. If that's a goal God has, he hasn't achieved it. And that's on him. So if I get to Judgment Day, I feel perfectly comfortable telling God everything I did and why I thought the way I did. And if that's not good enough for him, then honestly, I don't know what else I was supposed to do. All right. Okay, cool. So, so let's, let's move on to the third topic. Uh, we're at the hour 20 minute mark. So 
Yeah, Phil, what's the, the third topic that you wanted to discuss with these guys? And I promise anything we're leaving behind on the problem of evil and the hiddenness, we'll come back to after the two-hour mark when when Jordan has to go, because David and Phil, you guys are good to stay on for a little extra. So we'll come back to the stuff we're leaving. But Well, yeah. be before I go to the next point, um, I just want to issue a quick request. Okay. And that is, please don't misrepresent what I say because that has happened several times in our discussion. And I, I, would, I would humbly ask people to avoid doing that. Um, it's definitely happened. And, and I, I, I don't think it's very productive for our discussion. So, I'm representing um, you as, as honestly and forthright. Everything, what I understand of what you're saying is what I'm saying. So if I'm misrepresenting you, it's not intentional. I can't help what I understand. I, I'm doing my best. Okay. Okay. And, I, and that's why I keep interrupting to ask for clarification because I, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't advance a case to straw man a position. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there's, uh, I, I have no desire to straw man a, a, a position. So if you see me doing that, uh, you know, please, like, please, no. um, you know, just correct me on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. Principle of charity. We'll, we'll all try our best to rep represent each other fairly. So, all right, cool. So Phil, what, yeah. What's the third topic you wanted to discuss? Third topic is this. Um, and the, the, the basic proposition is atheism is a faith-based ideology and is therefore unworthy of anyone's credence. Um, atheists themselves tell us that it, it is undesirable and invalid to believe in propositions by faith without evidence. I have heard atheists say this over and over and over again. Um, and I have talked to many of them who have said this. Um, and I agree that it is undesirable and invalid. It is, it is, a, it is, it is a poor intellectual activity to believe in, some, in a proposition by faith without evidence. Yet atheism, with its accompanying atheistic science, is replete with faith-based beliefs and claims. For example, A, there is no scientific evidence that spontaneous abiogenesis ever occurred. Therefore, it is believed by faith. I personally heard my paleontology professor at the University of Colorado remark in one of his lectures, we scientists believe in spontaneous abiogenesis by a leap of faith. And that is true. B, there is no scientific evidence that evolution produced intelligence. That was the conversation I had with Lawrence Krauss. That it has is another atheistic article of faith and is a glaring example of unscientific superstition. C, there is no scientific evidence that the laws of nature produce the biological imperatives of survival and reproduction. They appeared by themselves out of nowhere for no reason, another article of faith. D, there's no scientific evidence that science will someday discover the laws of nature that account for A through C, which is another article of faith. E, there is no scientific evidence that God does not exist. It is therefore another article of faith to believe in the proposition God does not exist. Faith plays no role whatsoever in theistic or Christian epistemology. Non-Christian theism relies on rational arguments, not on faith without evidence. Christian theism relies on rational and historical evidence, which are not believed by faith without evidence. 
Faith in Christian theism is not believing without evidence. It is placing your trust and confidence in something that has proven itself to be trustworthy. So theism does not rely on faith without evidence. Atheism does rely on faith without evidence in key areas. Which worldview is sound? The one that relies on faith without evidence or the one that relies on reason and evidence? Okay, I feel like Jordan is going to have the most to say about this. So I just want to jump in quickly and then I can go back on mute. Because <laughs> uh, I don't want to be held responsible for someone's worldview, man. That's not uh, that's not me. I don't I don't even actually claim to have a worldview. I don't think it's necessary. That said, uh, the brand of atheist that I am is I don't believe uh, the claims that Christians make about the Christian God. I'm not, I'm not convinced that, uh, that God is real. I feel like I have good reasons for not being convinced that God is real. So there's no need of rehashing them here. It's not just a matter uh, of faith, but it is very hard to prove a negative. So even that God could be real and I not know it, but I am certainly not convinced of it. But my not being convinced of the existence of the Christian God does not say one word about how I think the universe got here or how intelligence formed or any of that. I don't make, I don't make positive, uh, positive claims about those things either. I'm not a scientist. Um, I, I know enough about the price of a jug of lactate milk because I really like that. And I, uh, you know, that's pretty much the only thing I can drink. Uh, and I get through my life the best way I can so that I can continue to support my lactate milk habit. As far as how the universe was formed <laughs> or these, these big brain questions that never enters my mind throughout the course of my day. I don't care. I don't give a hoot. Uh, I don't, I don't care if Voldemort did it or Dumbledore or I, I, I don't care if it was secure. All it doesn't matter. I just listen at the Christian arguments for their God, and I don't buy it. I also don't buy the Muslim God. I don't buy uh, Ganesh uh, or any of those gods. Uh, and the fact that I don't buy those gods simply does not uh, mean that I've made a positive claim about the billions of things that I don't know about and could care less about. <laughs> and so that's 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 really how uh, the only way I, that I can address that. Can me to respond, Dale? Yeah, yeah, uh, you can go ahead. And just, just so that everyone knows, um, I'm going to move on to the fourth topic at the one hour, 45 minute mark. So you got about 20 minutes to go over this topic. But I'm literally muting my mic. So <laughs> until, right. until I've heard Jordan say his piece, I'm not even going to think about it. Just, just so I don't come across as rude. That, I'm just giving you advance. But no, yeah. look, you got it. You got tough duty moderating this. <laughs> it, it, is, it is interesting. Yeah, better, better you than me, my friend. We're all, well, we're all. So, but don't, don't mute your mic just yet, David, because I have a couple questions. Okay. Um, uh, my first question is, do you believe that God does not exist, or do you lack a belief that God does exist? Which of those categories do you fall into? Most days, I'm what people would call a hard atheist. I really don't believe that God exists. That particular God in particular. I'm, I'm 
fair, a fairly hard atheist on the Jehovah's question, but I don't argue that way. Okay. So it, well, it's, my, it's my irrelevant. I only, I only argue as a, I've, I hear these arguments. They do not convince me uh, in the least bit, but I do not pretend to know what a greater truth is in place of your claim. I just, your, your claim doesn't convince me. So that's okay, so, tend, so, tend to so be what, how I argue. Let me make sure that I'm, that I'm clear on these questions because I'm not sure that I necessarily asked it in an accurate way. Um, do you believe that God does not exist? And that is a that is a different question from, do you not believe that God exists? See, those those two are actually right. Just- and, and and I'm and I'm telling you as as best I can. I am in my heart a hard atheist in that I don't believe that God exists. But when I argue like what I'm doing right now and a couple of days ago and throughout my site, I only argue in the soft atheist position of, I don't, uh, I, I do not positively, uh, assent to the claims that you're making that sort of thing. So, okay. Okay. um, Well, the the reason I ask is that, um, that the first chapter of my book, machines don't laugh mm -hmm. is entitled atheism is a worldview. And I hear a lot of atheists who will step up to the microphone and say, I never claim to believe or know that God does not exist. I just simply lack a belief that God does exist. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason I ask these two questions that have a subtle but important difference between the two. The questions are, do you believe God does not exist? Or do you claim to know that God does not exist? Or do you simply lack the belief that God does exist? Most accurately, and, I lack the belief that God exists. Okay. If if that's the case, I would argue that you are not an atheist, not even a hard atheist. I would argue that you are an agnostic. Fine. Because an agnostic does not have the belief that God exists. An atheist has the belief and even the knowledge claim that God does not exist. And yes, so... But- I don't. I don't. The label doesn't really bother. I don't label, label myself as an agnostic, but if that's uh, if that's what you think is best suited in your framework, yeah. great. I'm an agnostic, but I I kind of think agnostics are a little bit more frustrating to deal with, um, for than than hard atheists because an agnost an agnostic often takes position of not only do I know, but it's not possible to know, and right. so it's it's it kind of forecloses the possibility of any fruitful conversation. Uh, yeah, ag- so. ag- uh, the, the subjective agnostic says, I don't know. And, but the, the hard agnostic, what I call the real agnostic says, nobody can know. God yeah. is unknowable is a much different statement than I don't know if God exists. Right. I think if the Christian God exists, we could know it because he could, he could just make us know it. So I don't, I don't buy the argument that he's unknowable. Uh, but I definitely, you know, I've said this many, many times. God could exist. He absolutely could exist. That I think I've said in this conversation, he could exist. I don't know. So I, I just want to bring in Jordan. Like, where, where do you stand on this issue of terminology? I believe no gods exist. So you actively disbelieve kind of thing, right? Uh, I I accept the proposition 
that gods do not exist. I think that is more likely true than not. Okay. And, and that, and that I, I would, I'm more or less confident depending on the God you're talking about, but that's the position I hold regarding all gods. Okay. Cool. okay. So, so I, I would, I would say then, I think it's fair to say um, that Jordan is an atheist and David is an agnostic. Because, By, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. An atheist, an atheist is a person who subscribes to the worldview of atheism. The worldview of atheism has as its central proposition, God does not exist. So if someone believes in the proposition, God does not exist, they subscribe to the worldview of atheism, and therefore they are an atheist, because an atheist is someone who subscribes to the worldview of, of atheism. If someone says, I lack a belief in God, then that is not a worldview at all. And, and I, I appreciate David saying that he doesn't necessarily care and doesn't necessarily have a worldview um, because that is simply an intellectual, that, that's, that's, it's, I don't mean this to be a derogatory term, but it's an intellectual vacuum. That's all it is to say, I don't know if God exists. It's not a it's not a bad intellectual vacuum, and, and it's, I don't criticize people for saying that, but that's the best way to describe it. Agnosticism, as a worldview, says it is impossible to know whether God exists, and nobody can know whether God exists. Not just me, but it applies to everybody. So, um, so that's where I bring in the. Point three, that atheism is a faith-based ideology, because atheism is the belief that God does not exist. And if that's true, then there are certain implications for, for scientific inquiry and so on that, that, are, that are consequences of the belief that God does not exist. And so, so I, I gave examples of atheistic science that st that is based on the foundation that God does not exist, and what the implications are for what the, what how they have to approach those scientific claims. So I don't agree that atheism is. I, I don't. I think a worldview is too expansive because it's an answer to one question. Um, it might have some implications, but there are atheists who believe in the supernatural. There are atheists who think ghosts exist. There are atheists who like all atheists are a very diverse bunch. But I'll cut to the chase because when you're talking to this atheist, and this atheist also happens to be a naturalist, so I don't think there is any supernatural. Uh, so uh, whether or not it applies to atheists, it applies to me. Um, so we can not worry about the, this this hypothetical atheist. We can talk to this one right here. Um, when you say faith do you mean belief without evidence or belief without sufficient evidence? Is that what you mean? In that's what faith is. That's what faith is in the modern sense. And that's what faith is in the atheist worldview. Okay. Because what atheists uh, continually tell me is that you Christians or you theists believe in things in the absence of evidence. And so therefore you believe them by faith. And my point is that, that it is the atheists who believe in several key areas in things by faith without evidence. So um, I don't, as a blanket statement, tell theists that they believe what they believe based on faith. I think some do faith. And I'm going to, I'm just going to use faith, meaning belief without evidence for the purposes of this discussion. I understand it has other meanings, whatever. Uh, so 
I don't think every theist is in that boat. I don't think Dale's in that boat, for example. Uh, but there are others who are. And I think there are atheists who don't have very good reasons for being atheists, and there are atheists who have good reasons. I mean, whatever. Uh, so I would not be an atheist who would who would level that claim on every single theist as a broad brush. Um, but I'm going to focus on what you're saying about atheists. So I, uh, I don't think I hold faith positions in the sense that I, I think, I try at least, to believe things for which I have sufficient evidence. Now, um, a lot of times that means I don't know, or it means that I have low confidence in my beliefs because I may not have sufficient evidence for confidence. Um, so let's take, you said abiogenesis, the origins of the universe, intelligence. What was the other thing? So the abiogenesis, um, that evolution produced intelligence, um, that the laws of nature produce the biological imperatives of survival and reproduction. Okay, you and didn't then, say universe. And then there is, there is, uh, and then the belief that science will someday discover the laws of nature that account for A through C that I just okay. mentioned. So I'll tackle the last one first. Uh, I hope that that's the case. I don't, I don't know that that's the case. I mean, uh, we science has a pretty good track record, so I think I feel justified in being hopeful. Um, but I mean, just because you've succeeded in the past does not necessarily guarantee you'll succeed in the future. So maybe we've just reached the limit of human understanding. I don't know. But I'd like to think we haven't. Um, I will say that I don't think the hard problem of consciousness has been solved. I don't think that abiogenesis has a, a full, a, a, there's no scientific consensus around abiogenesis. They have some ideas. Those ideas seem plausible. Which one is correct? Are none of them correct? N nobody knows yet. That's a gap in knowledge, but I'm comfortable with there being a gap in knowledge. Um, so what, where I would be on, I'm just going to focus on abiogenesis, just to be simple, even though I, I am not, a biologist and don't find it particularly interesting personally. But I know a lot of biologists who are very passionate about it. And uh, I don't know how life began. Um, there are, what I do have though, are some models that seem to be consistent with our understanding of how the universe works, that at least plausibly could lead to uh, going from non-living matter to the life that we see at least the first life and then evolution takes it from there so um i would say that i have sufficient evidence that i don't think believing in a supernatural cause is warranted like basically my my view is that we all agree the natural world exists and so for me to accept a layer above that a supernatural world i'd need like a really good reason to to add that ontological commitment and when it comes to abiogenesis, I don't think I have sufficient reason to add that ontological commitment. Does that all make sense? Kind of. Okay. So I don't know if you'd call that a faith position. <laughs> well, here, here's what I call a faith position in the modern sense and in, in the sense that atheists typically use the word. Um, because the atheists that I discussed with for example, Lawrence Krauss, um, they claim that atheism is a worldview that is grounded in science and that, and that atheists do not accept any propositions on faith without any evidence, and usually they mean scientific evidence. And they claim... With, sorry, sorry. I disagree with Krauss. They, they claim that Christians and theists 
believe in their core beliefs solely on the basis of faith without any evidence. Yeah, Lawrence Krauss is not my prophet. Um, no, I don't have prophets. Christians do have prophets, though. And so part of those prophets are part of the Christian book. And so that book does call for faith. And you can say, well, we just don't understand the definition of faith that the Bible's talking about. But it, it, it does seem fair to say that faith is an important part of the Christian uh, doctrine. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, that's that's Bible. So it's there. There are some faith commitments uh, there, and so I don't think it's completely ad hominem to say that uh, part of a Christian uh, foundation uh, is faith. And I don't think it's completely incorrect to say that sometimes atheists believe things without sufficient reason to believe them. Uh, but we, the difference, I think, uh, at least with me, is I try to identify those things that I believe without uh, sufficient reason and and stop believing them. I'll hold them loosely and study it or just take an I don't know position, whereas the Christian cannot abandon faith in some description, because it is a it is a part of the the job description, as it were. Right. Well, faith is central to the Christian faith. That's true. But the problem is that when we say faith is a central is a key central component of the Christian faith, we don't we don't mean that believing in propositions by faith without evidence is a key component of the Christian faith. What we're saying is that faith is not the basis for epistemology, but faith is the basis for a relationship. And that's the difference between, between the modern concept of faith, which was derived from existentialism, a, leap, a blind leap of faith, a blind leap in the dark, believing something even though you have absolutely no reason to believe it, or you don't have sufficient reason to believe it. So it, it, it is is actually more accurate to say that that faith in the Christian worldview has to do with the basis for a relationship with God, but it has nothing to do with a foundation for epistemology. Well, in other words, faith plays faith in faith plays no role in Christian epistemology whatsoever. So so that's kind of you know the distinction that, that needs to be made. And if, if that distinction isn't made, then we can wind up in a lot of confusion. Could could we substitute the word faith for trust then the way you're using it for Christians? Okay. Absolutely. So if we if we eliminated faith on that side, can we eliminate it on the atheist side too? Uh with with something maybe a little bit less charged? Because I'm I'm perfectly willing to eliminate, you know, faith for the purpose of this conversation. Because you're describing it as trust. Now, I believe that there are other meanings for faith for the Christian. That's a different rate. But I, I'm just taking your self-report that you, you're you talking about trust in a relationship. And if you say, well, but atheists, on the other hand, we just have the bad faith. And that's not really true. What we would have, and I'm just trying to think of a, a different way of putting it, is maybe confidence in uh, methodologies that have uh, provided good outcome and good reason to keep trying them in the future for other answers. That's not that's not uh, 
a, a blind leap without evidence. That is trust in a series of ideas that have worked so far. And so if we could, if we could both kind of use that same language, we can eliminate the charged word that neither side really accepts the other's meaning of. Okay. Well, the problem here is that um, that the the bad faith, the so-called bad faith that you referred to, mm-hmm. um, the, the the bad faith that atheists accuse Christians of, the way they define it, the way they define faith, they practice the exact same kind of faith that they accuse Christians or theists of practicing. You're so, claiming you're claiming a hypocrisy, and I I also get upset with hypocrisy. So I'm not I'm not denying that many do that. But what I'm suggesting, especially for the purposes of of this panel, I don't think anyone I don't think anyone is uh, resting their hope on the bad kind of faith. And so I I believe I speak for Jordan when I when I talk about faith as a sort of trusting uh, a methodology that has worked so far in the past to provide more good answers in the future. That's not a, that's not that kind of faith any more than you're saying that your faith is that kind of faith. You're trusting a relationship for the future, for a future outcome that you can't be sure of, but because of, uh, the, you know, past success and because of other things that you can uh, see and and map toward reality that you understand. You have trust in the relationship in God. That is that is how I would describe the atheists' trust in the scientific method. Say, and by the way, there are many Christians who are scientists. They would say the same thing. They uh, they they don't have a different relationship with the scientific method than we do. True. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, the, the one of the things that I think should be said is that either there is scientific evidence for something like a biogenesis, or there isn't. If there isn't, and you still believe in it, then what, we, we are believing something by faith. That's, I mean, it's it's just very simple. We're, we're believing in something by faith in the in the absence of evidence for it. Right. And if but... that's if that's and and the and. If the if the atheists are telling Christians that that's a bad thing, then my response to that is then they ought not do it themselves, and or at I least they should, or at least they should admit I don't that they're doing the same thing that they accuse Christians of doing. Yeah, I think I think if if Phil's if Phil's analysis is correct, then I would agree with that. I don't know that it is correct, though, um, as, as he's thinking about it. Something like abiogenesis, uh, I'm I'm not going to make certain positive claims about abiogenesis. I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I'm not a physicist. Uh, so I'm happy to put it in the I don't know bucket of things. However, I can uh, within that, I don't know, bucket. It's not just a bl- you know a blank abyss. It's not like I haven't done some reading and studying. I can tell you which way uh, my thoughts are leaning, where where I think has the most, um, what makes the most uh, sense, and tell you you know if you have to ask, well, is it true or not? I don't know, but I can tell you what I think. And that's that's true for both Christians and atheists. The things in our I don't know buckets 
are not pure voids. We we still have opinions about those things, and we can lean one way or the other without it being said that oh, we're just putting faith in that thing as a as a positive assertion. Awesome. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll let David get the last word. We are at the one hour forty five minute mark, so. It- I want to make sure we have at least 15 minutes or more on the fourth topic before Jordan has to go. So, uh, yeah, Phil, what's what's your take? On, what's the fourth objection? And outline your case that you want to go over with the atheists. Yeah. Um, and by the way, um, I, I am sympathetic to Jordan here because um, his body language told me that he had a lot to say about that previous topic, but didn't get a chance to say it. And so I want to apologize. Um, I, I hope I didn't monopolize the time for you there. Um, You're good. We just drive on to the end. Okay. Um, point four um, has a lot to do with with what Jordan said earlier, because he said that he is an atheist and he's a naturalist. And I applaud you, Jordan for saying that um, because I think that it's logically necessary for an atheist to be a naturalist. I don't think it's coherent for an atheist to believe in the supernatural because that becomes indistinguishable from superstition. So point four is if God does not exist, naturalism is our only feasible ideology about the nature of the universe. Naturalism necessitates determinism. Everything that occurs in the universe is determined by a mutable natural law. If something occurs that is not determined by natural law, something beyond natural law exists, naturalism is defeated, and atheism atheism is defeated by extension. So naturalism is the atheist's only feasible option. And a little sidebar here, um, and I discuss this in the book, is that Naturalism is logically absurd and necessarily false. If naturalism is true, the laws of nature cannot have their origin in anything beyond the laws of nature. But you cannot explain the laws of nature on the basis of the laws of nature because nothing can create itself. Therefore, the laws of nature must be explained on the basis of something beyond them. Whatever is beyond the laws of nature is by definition supernatural if the supernatural exists, naturalism is false by default. But I wanted to return to the point, and that is that determinism leads to the obliteration of human knowledge. Wait, Stephen Hawking. Are we just, just going to leave all that out there and just, just leave it? Just take it as, as, as a given? It's cool? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm confused when I'm supposed to jump in. Yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, let, me, let me just get through what I want to say, okay. and then I'll try to make it fast. Um, Stephen Hawking said this, it is Laplace who usually is credited with first postulating scientific determinism. Given the state of the universe at one time, a complete set of laws fully determines both the future and the past. This would exclude the possibility of miracles or an active role for God. The scientific determinism that Laplace formulated is the modern scientist's answer to question two, which is, are there any exceptions to the laws of nature or miracles? It is, in fact, the basis of all modern science and a principle that is important throughout this book. And that book is The Grand Design by Stephen Hawking. A scientific law is not a scientific law if it holds only when some supernatural being decides not to intervene. Since people live in the universe and interact with the other objects in it, scientific determinism must hold for people as well. 
Though we feel that we can choose what we do, our understanding of the molecular basis of biology shows that biological processes are governed by the laws of physics and chemistry, and therefore are as determined as the orbits of the planets. Recent experiments in neuroscience support the view that it is our physical brain following the known laws of science that determines our actions and not some agency that exists outside those laws. It is hard to imagine how free will can operate if our behavior is determined by physical law. So it seems that we are no more than biological machines and that free will is just an illusion. Now, I will ignore for the moment the elephant in the room, which is machines cannot have illusions. They are incapable of judging whether the information stored in them is true or false, right or wrong, just or unjust, real or illusory. Machines don't judge. They only store and retrieve raw information and behave according to their programming, and that is all. Incidentally, this is all artificial intelligence does. It's called artificial for a reason. It's not real intelligence. It's all an illusion. The programmer establishes a set of criteria for producing the illusion of thinking. Further, artificial intelligence machines don't program themselves, nor are they programmed by blind, unintelligent natural law. So, as Hawking points out, if everything is determined, that must include all of our thoughts, beliefs, and judgments. If all of our thoughts, beliefs, and judgments are determined by natural law, e.g. E physics and chemistry in the brain, there's no way to know whether any of them, any of our beliefs are true or false. They're determined by natural cause and effect. They're not produced by rational deliberation, delivered, driven by libertarian freedom to choose the, connect, to choose the correct conclusions from the evidence. If so, logic, or, sorry, if so, knowledge is necessarily impossible. And by the way, science becomes a meaningless parade of incoherent noise along with it. If we can't know anything, we can't know that we are accurately observing anything in the external world. C.S. Lewis says this, if there is no God, my mind was not designed to think or to have reliable knowledge. If our minds were not designed to think or have reliable knowledge, they are incapable of such things. And we have no way of knowing whether our minds can facilitate knowledge and truth. We can't trust any of our own beliefs. Machines driven by unintelligent, purposeless natural law generate random information without rational meaning or specificity. They are just as random as the wind or the waves on the sand. If waves on the sand determined by natural law happen to spell out Seattle as 50 miles to the north, would that be reliable information? Of course not. If there is no God, we could never know it. Now, any proposition that is logically self-defeating is necessarily false. The proposition knowledge is impossible is logically self-defeating. You have to know something in order to comprehend the proposition. Therefore, the proposition knowledge is impossible is self-defeating. It is necessarily false. If a proposition is necessarily false, its contradiction is necessarily true. The proposition knowledge is impossible is necessarily false. Therefore, the proposition knowledge is not impossible is necessarily true. In other words, knowledge is possible by necessity. So that brings us to the following two arguments. First, if, natural, if naturalism determinism is true, knowledge is impossible. Knowledge is not impossible, therefore naturalism determinism is false. If there's a second argument, if there is no God, naturalism determinism is true. Naturalism determinism is false, as we just showed. Therefore, God exists. This does not establish that Christianity is true, but it defeats the proposition that it is false merely on the basis of the non-existence of God. Awesome. Thank you so much. So 
All right, cool. So because we are approaching the end, David, if you don't mind just kind of being on the back burner in the meantime, but Jordan, I do want to make sure that you get your fair chance to address whatever you want to say on this topic with, with Phil for the last remaining minutes or so. There was a lot in there and I don't think I caught most of it. So I'm going to go with what I, what I caught. Um, Atheism entails naturalism. I don't think it does. Uh, I think, I think atheists who hold the supernatural beliefs, I, I don't agree. I don't think they're warranted in that belief. I don't think it's correct. But if atheism just means that you don't believe, you believe no gods exist, well, you could just believe in a godless supernatural world if that's what you want to do. Um, but that's not what I believe. So uh, you said... Can I just ask a quick question? Sure, if, man. If an, if an atheist believes in the supernatural, how is that? how is that any different from superstition? I, I mean, it would depend on the belief system. I'm not that guy. You'd have to ask that guy. Okay. All right. Sorry. Um, let's see. So, uh, naturalism entails determinism. No, it doesn't. Um, it it really comes down to what you think about quantum mechanics. There are some interpretations of quantum mechanics that are deterministic. Uh, I happen to think that I, I like the many worlds interpretation the best, and that's deterministic. So, I think the world is deterministic, but. I could very easily be wrong because nobody has any clue what is going on with quantum mechanics. There are other interpretations, the Copenhagen being otherwise known as shut up and calculate, which is the most popular among physicists, and that is completely indeterministic. So it could very well be that the universe is not deterministic. Um, now, I don't think that that quantum level uncertainty buys you anything with regards to free will. So if your point has to do like determinism as relevant to free will, if that's where the determinism matters, then it may be a distinction without a difference. Is that is that wh what matters for determinism for the purposes of your discussion? Uh, okay, say it again. So I don't agree that naturalism entails determinism. However, I don't think the kind of indeterminism that naturalism, as we understand the laws of nature currently allows, would have any relevance to free will. So far as we're concerned, it may as well be deterministic as far as free will concerns. So okay. is your interest in determinism in this, this, this statements you gave, is it, is determinism relevant only insofar as it affects free will? Um, it, it is relevant in terms of how it affects free will. I wouldn't say that's the only relevance it has, but it does have that relevance for the purpose of my argument. Okay. So, so <clears throat> I'd say, I, I'd say when it comes to free will, the kind of indeterminism we have doesn't matter. It may as well be determinism so far as free will is concerned. Okay. Yep. Uh, if there's any other application it has, then I just don't, I, I agree the world is deterministic. I don't think we know that though. I just, that's my guess. And I have a 50, 50 chance of being right. Um, so now whether or not uh, I have free will when it comes to determinism, I actually just finished rereading Daniel Dennett's uh, book, Freedom Evolves, um, on compatibilism. So I would agree, if by free will, you mean strictly and only libertarian free will. For those in the audience who don't know, that means that I've got some ghost in the machine, some will of mine that is unencumbered from natural laws or any other effects. It's just me running this meat golem with a bow tie. If that's the only thing that can mean free will to you, then I don't have free will in that sense. I think I have free will in a very relevant sense, in the compatibilist sense. Uh, but yeah, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Uh, okay. I that that's as far as my notes took me. So uh, 
Awesome. Awesome. All right. Cool. Well, yeah. Th thank oh, you. Oh, sorry. No One more thing. You said naturalism is self-defeating because the, otherwise the natural laws, they have to come from somewhere basically. Right. Um, I think it's just a matter of fact that if you dig down deeply enough in anybody's opinions, eventually you're going to get to a brute fact. It's just, it, it can't be turtles all the way down. So um, if it is the case that something must just exist necessarily, or perhaps have existed forever. If something must be that way, then it seems to me the most parsimonious thing I can think of to be like that is some kind of quantum field or energy or whatever. So there are cosmological models that are eternal in the past and future, in which case there'd be no beginning to explain. There are cosmological models that um, have the universe coming, not from a philosophical nothing, but from like, there's no space, no time, you know, you're familiar with Lawrence Krauss's stuff and other, so I won't bore everyone with the details. Uh, so I don't think that means naturalism is self-defeating though. I think that naturalism ends ultimately in a brute fact. So I, I never said naturalism is self-defeating. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought, was, I, uh, I thought that's what you said. You said it was like incoherent or, or something like that. The naturalism say. is logically absurd and necessarily false. Okay. Okay. I don't think it's that, that either. The reason for that is that you cannot explain the origin of natural law on the basis of natural law. I don't think I need to explain the origin of natural law necessarily. Well, the the the, the origin of natural law needs to be explained whether someone's willing to try or not. Why? You know, either either natural law because that has a huge implications for whether or not God exists and whether or not the the universe is self-existent and eternal and so on. Um, if the natural if natural law cannot be it, its own origin then something must have produced natural law that is beyond natural law. And that by definition would be supernatural. Why? So he has huge implications for, for theism, atheism and our worldview and the whole nine yards. You're just asserting things like, so what you want me, you've got, I've got natural law, right? And I, I, that could be, let's just say it is a brute fact. That's just, there is natural law because that's the brute fact. What you think is preferable is no, that's not it. It's God. There's your brute fact. Well, you just went one level up. Like, why should I go? Why should I go to the level? I don't see any reason to invoke another brute fact on top to explain this brute fact. Like, like I'm happy stopping here. Okay. And uh, so I don't think you're doing this on purpose, but you're, you're misrepresenting what I'm saying. I'm not saying okay. that, that, that I simply arbitrarily prefer God as the brute fact over natural law as the brute fact. What I'm saying is that natural law cannot be a brute fact. It cannot, it cannot explain its own origin. It cannot be its own origin. Something must have brought natural law into existence. Something must have caused natural law to exist. And if whatever caused natural law to exist m must be supernatural by definition. Why because, must, I'm, I'm because, sorry, why must something have, have brought it into existence? It is outside of natural law. Whatever is outside of natural law is supernatural. That's the very definition of supernatural. You're just so asserting if, things. Like, you, you, like, okay, I get you believe that, but why should I agree with you? Why should I, I, why should I I'm agree not, I'm not that presenting I need an explanation? My, I'm not presenting my vacuous assertions. I'm presenting a logical, logically coherent, necessary formulation of ideas that, that it is simply logically necessary that natural law the origin of natural law cannot be natural law. 
that is simply logically incoherent, logically contradictory. It simply, it simply cannot be true by necessity. It's not simply an assertion or my personal belief. So if that's the case, if, if, if natural law cannot create itself, if natural law cannot be the origin of natural law, and it can't, then the origin of natural law must be something that is outside of and beyond natural law. That's simply logically necessary. It's not my opinion or belief or, you know, or, or personal assertion. And so if, if, if something's brought natural law into existence and that something must be supernatural, naturalism is false. I never said that natural law had to bring natural law into existence. I never said that. So I don't I know. know who you're arguing against. It's I'm not, I'm not I'm not saying you did say that. Then why are we talking about it? Who are you arguing against, man? Because I'm okay. arguing it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm doesn't arguing matter. against naturalism. Okay. I'm okay. Arguing Whatever. Against All I'm saying is if I have to have a brute fact, and it seems like I do, if if you're telling me that something just has to exist, then I don't see why it's any less incoherent to say, okay, that's just quantum mechanics of the field, whatever, call, just call it the label of natural law, whatever energy and fields is sufficient to explain everything else. Why that can't be just the thing, the brute fact thing that exists. Why do I have to have a further explanation? I, I, I would love a further explanation. I don't understand why I must have one. Um, I'm, I'm not saying you must have one. I'm simply saying that natural law cannot be a brute fact because natural law cannot explain its own origins. And so you, you want your brute facts to be coherent. You, can't, you don't want your brute facts to be logically incoherent or logically contradictory or logically absurd. You want your brute facts to make sense and to be logical, to be coherent. And, and the idea that natural law just simply exists as a brute fact means that it had to have been its own origin. Because if I ask what the origin of natural law is, there has to be an answer to that. You can't just with, retreat from that question and say, I don't want to answer that question. I'm just going to accept natural law as a brute fact, even though you might personally object to it. I, okay. I, I don't. Okay. You think it's incoherent? Cool, man. I, I don't know what else. I don't know what else to tell you. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, cool. So with that, we are at the two hour mark. So I know Jordan has to go at that time, but Phil and David are happy to, to stay on board. So we can stay on and, and go over anything that we miss. But I do want to say thank you. Thank you uh, to Jordan now uh, for coming on. And yep, I know during the problem of Evo it got a little bit um, heated, but I thought the last two arguments you got, you and Phil had a great conversation that was handled. Awesome. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on, coming back on again to uh, discuss these issues and uh, yeah, you're, you're welcome on my show anytime. Cool. See ya. I'm grateful, Jordan. Thank is you. It, is it? I think we just lost Jordan. I was just going to ask if it was possible for me to make a quick statement and see and get Jordan's reaction to it because I, I no, feel it, like we may have, might have been on the same page, but I, I wanted to. No, that's kind of clarify. No, he, he wanted to go, but but yeah, so cool. So okay, so now that uh, Jordan's had his final say, I'm going to let you two go at it because I know that we had to kind of bypass some of the things Phil wanted to say. Um, so yeah, so you know what, I'll, I'll get out of the way. Um, like 
what uh, what time would you guys want to like maybe around the three hour mark at most? I, I have I have uh, some critical medicine that I need to take about uh, three hours ago, so um, I'm okay. I'm going to need a time machine and uh, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back. So I'm I'm already um, past what I what I needed to do there, but I I would like to at least make a statement and get. Um, Phil's reaction to it, if not uh, Jordan's, because it's a a little bit of an overview of the entire idea of uh, discovering God through philosophy, uh, and it's it's the kind of thing that I have said before uh, in in different ways. It's not that I don't have any respect for the field of philosophy. I don't think it is as useful. Uh, in theology as academic theologians believe it is. I understand why they go there. But at the end of the day, I think the pursuit of finding God through philosophy is ultimately self-defeating. Because what you can do is produce a logically coherent proposal. You can make a proposal, and because my education in that area is inferior, you can produce a proposal that I could even agree with. Like, for instance, your last argument. Uh, if naturalism, uh, then if, if you're a naturalist, I'm also a naturalist, but mostly because I can't, no one has shown me any, any other option. But let's just go with that. If naturalism then uh, naturalism is self-defeating and therefore there must be God. Okay, let's just, let's just assume that that is a logical statement. Great, you win. I can't, I, I can't defeat that. I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> so you have won the proposition. I agree with your proposition. I still don't know God. Uh, and this is what happens with philosophy, I think, a lot, it introduces people to a proposition. But the Christianity that I used to be a part of and that I understand best is the Christianity that wants to introduce you to a person. God is not a proposition. And, and we don't introduce people to other people by propositions. If, if, if you want to have me meet one of your friends, you would not give a logical syllogism to try to define me or or suppress or, or, or compress their thinking into something that would produce meanness in them. Because I'm not a proposition. I'm a person. If you want to introduce me to one of your friends, you would introduce me to your friends. Academic theologians are propositionists. God is not a philosophy. He's not a proposition. He's a person. And if he's not a person, I can agree with you all day long and still not know the person of God. It, it does not get there. And the best you can do, and maybe the worst thing you could do, would be to convince me of your propositions. Because then that becomes my God. 
And at the end of the day, I think what Jordan and I and people like us are saying is, great, nice philosophy. Can I meet the guy? Um, because I don't, I don't, I don't even think Dale would disagree with me here. If if you if you don't come to a place where you meet the guy, it doesn't matter what propositions you um, intellectually assent to. Yeah, um, I, 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 uh, I resonate with a whole lot of that um, because as a Christian, I do want to introduce people to God as a person. But if I am talking to someone who is skeptical that he even exists, I have to address that issue first. I can't introduce a person to someone who doesn't believe that person exists. So this is a false dichotomy in the sense that that just because we are establishing that God exists through whatever arguments we have at our disposal doesn't mean that we are negating the personal nature of God. What we're doing is we're trying to remove the barrier of disbelief or unbelief. And that's part of my whole apologetic, that, that, the, uh, that the idea, the fact that God exists is the first step toward meeting him personally face to face. Because like I said before, if you don't believe God exists, if you don't believe my friend exists, I can't introduce you to them. You can. That, that's where we would disagree. You absolutely can. You can introduce all kinds of people that I don't believe exist. You can introduce them. You can, you can, and, and I would believe they exist. Uh, so but you're not going to not going to have a personal relationship with somebody that you don't believe exists. I'm not going to have a personal relationship with someone I believe exists if I don't like them. So well, that's, we have that's to true too, but that's but, irrelevant. But well, but we have to meet, right? We have to we have to meet, and yeah. we can work on the personal relationship. But if I'm at the if I'm at the place of, you know, in order to have a personal relationship with God, I've got to accept certain philosophies it's a it's a non-starter i don't even understand them so here's what i understand we can meet uh and and so i um i don't i don't i don't see why going through uh four years of a graduate program in philosophy in order to understand the ontological argument to then believe that some kind of maximal great being has anything to do with meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus? Yeah, it, I would say it has everything to do with meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, because there are people who don't believe that Jesus exists. There are, sir, there, there are lots of people in our modern world that don't have the luxury, don't have that, that didn't have the blessing of being able to meet Jesus face to face, or, and they don't, they don't, have the luxury of meeting God face to face the way some people did in the past. And that's what we have to deal with. Um, Peter Kreft is one of my favorite Christian apologists and philosophers. He is also a magnificent theologian, even though there are some things that I disagree with on his theology, but that's beside the point. And Peter Kreft said that in our modern world, we have to overcome a barrier before we can introduce people to Jesus or introduce people to God. And that barrier is the fact that we live in a world where truth no longer matters 
and where people do not believe that God even exists. There was a time when God's existence was kind of a consensus in our country. And our culture pretty much accepted God as an axiom. Even if they didn't believe in him personally, they still believed that he existed and that he mattered to our world. And that a lot of what we do in our lives have significance in God's eyes, whether they want to actually repent and believe in him or not. We don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world where we have to do what Peter Kreft called pre-evangelism. And pre-evangelism has to consist in the, the, the effort to overcome people's belief where they're convinced that God does not exist. And so I, someone who does not believe God exists is not going to be interested in meeting him. And so I have to overcome that. Except for all of the people who have, you know, supposedly met him who didn't believe he existed. Uh, and they met him through some miraculous means, uh, senses venitatis, uh, through through something. You just listen to their testimonies all, all the time. They sure. were not seeking God at all. And yet something happened in their lives and God showed himself to them in a way that, uh, you know, made a, made a substantive difference. So... Absolutely. Once again, they weren't, they didn't get there because uh, someone won a philosophical right. argument. It, not right. one of Jesus' 12 apostles would have been one of his 12 apostles had he not showed up and said, let me tell you where the fish are. Yeah, um, I agree. They had to meet him. They mm -hmm. didn't, if, 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 but let's just, cat, just, play that out a little bit further. If John the Baptist, if his message uh, had been, uh, I'm going to give you philosophies about why God is a triune being and why the second person of the Trinity uh, is, uh, in fact, the one in whom you need to put your faith in, and he, and he gives the kinds of arguments that philosophers give uh, today, there would be no 12 apostles. The yeah. reason we have 12 apostles is because Jesus showed up. Right. I, I agree with that completely. Um, but the reason that John the Baptist didn't have to provide any logical reasons for people to believe in God is because he lived in a culture where the existence of God was the consensus view already. So he didn't have to overcome the barriers that we have to overcome in the 21st century. And believing, getting introduced to God or, or understanding that he exists or knowing that he exists through philosophical means is not the only way that we can introduce people to God. That's not the only way that we can convince people that God exists. But for some people, it is the way that we need to convince them that God exists because they're in a state of unbelief and they have an ideology and a worldview in which God does not exist. So there are times when we need to give people rational reasons why God exists. And once they believe that God does exist as an intellectual process, then we can say, all right, you believe he exists. Let me introduce him to you. He's got, he is a personal God who desires to have a relationship with you. Now, in other lots of other cases, like you mentioned, people don't 
don't don't get there through a philosophical framework. People sometimes people get there just because something occurred in their life where some got somehow God made Himself real to them in some way, some mysterious way that I can't that I can't describe. And I can't. I'm not saying that God can't do that. All I'm saying is that there are many cases where the philosophical presentation and the basis for Christianity and theism is necessary because someone needs it, but not everyone does need it. You're right in that in that particular observation. Not everybody needs it, and it won't be meaningful to a whole lot of people. What will be meaningful to some people is simply to describe who Jesus is as a person, that he's a savior who loves you, that he desires to have a relationship with you. And for that particular person, that's enough for them. And if that's the case, I'm not going to try to launch some kind of philosophical presentation for them because they don't need it. That's not where they are. But the problem is that there are a lot of people where that is where they are. And I deal with a whole lot of atheists and if I'm going to try to overcome their unbelief, I'm going to try to I'm going to have to use something that they respect, and that is logic, reason. And oh. if they respect it, and I'm able to win them over through the philosophical framework, then I would say, wonderful, you believe God exists? Don't just be like Anthony Flew, where he changed his mind and just became a deist. I want to introduce him to you now. Now that you have overcome this philosophical barrier yeah i definitely want to introduce you to him in in but the absence in, in the absence of that presuppositional belief though that god exists and you're saying well you know it's it's harder uh in in a world where that's not a presupposition i would still caution you that there's a danger uh in using philosophy to get there for instance I know that there are many, and I will hear from them uh, tonight, who would say, um, if if Phil's God, as he has described him, is real, and I might be forced to agree that he's real because I can't think of any better argument, I don't want a relationship with that guy. I, I, I want nothing to do with that, that mental concept that Phil has given me. Great. You won the argument. You even convinced someone that a God exists, but you put them even further away from a relationship with the God than, than they were before you philosophied them into submission. I, 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 just, simply... I just don't think that that is ever going to get you the kind of result of of meeting a loving God that that you hope. No, look, I might be wrong, and maybe maybe what the world needs is a better Christian philosopher. But I don't I don't think that that has been working uh, for yeah. for the well, for the church. <laughs> the measure of the validity of any given ideology or any given approach or methodology is not based on its success, it's based on its validity. And I am only presenting the God of the Bible when I'm describing God and his goodness and his justice and his, his authority over all of creation. I'm not saying anything that, that is inconsistent with the biblical revelation of God. But my, my entire 
my entire uh well not entire but but my my philosophical and apologetic pursuit is twofold one of them is to address the existence of god with atheists who respect logical reasoning and who respect evidence and who demand that I give them evidence before they are going to believe that that God exists. And they're going to have to believe that he exists before they're going to be willing to be introduced to him. So that is a, that is a, a, a huge part of my pursuits as a Christian apologist. The other part of my pursuit as a Christian apologist is to address Christians who already believe in God, who already have a biblical worldview and already have a relationship with him, but the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse come along and they deceive them into believing that their whole Christian, their whole Christian framework is false. And they fall away from Christianity. They walk away from their faith. And every time they walk away from their faith, from the influence of, of, of the atheists that are out there, the high profile atheists like Lawrence Krauss and Richard Dawkins and so on, it's always on the basis of a logical fallacy. And the reason I wrote my book, Machines Don't Laugh, Confronting the Fallacies of Atheism Again, is that I want Christians to have a tool in their hands where they can, they can learn to identify the fallacies of atheism so that they don't get seduced by them. I and they don't get ripped away from their faith. I, I understand that desire as a former preacher. I understand that desire but i yeah. i have come to actually believe that it's it's an incoherent idea and in in this way um if i can convince someone that they are that they really don't know god then they didn't know god <laughs> because it, it 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 seems pretty absurd uh, if not just outright impossible, to be in the loving bosom of God and then doubt that you are in the loving bosom of God, right? You you have a relationship with God. Well, I don't, but I don't think it is. I think that, that I think that it's scripture. No, no, but let me, maybe what I'm saying is more philosophical. I don't think that they ever knew that they were in the presence of God if they can be convinced that they are not in the presence of God. Um, they they were maybe there for bad reasons, and maybe it was good that some atheists came along uh, and pointed that out. But it would be as impossible um, for me to convince someone that there isn't a God if they have God actually talking to them there in the presence of God, as it would be for you to convince me that my wife isn't real. Um, I understand that there are probably some mental constructs uh, in, in reality where I could just be mistaken uh, that my wife is real, but you're never going to convince me of it. She's in the next room. <laughs> uh, she's, she's real, and she, you can't make her not real by talking me out of it, by using good arguments, bad arguments, uh, drugs. You can't talk me into believing it's not real. And if God, if that relationship is even more tangible 
then I shouldn't be able to convince anyone that it's not real. That it simply should be impossible. And so what I'm saying is, I don't I don't think that you have people like Lawrence Krauss and Dawkins to blame for Christians peeling away from their faith. You might have bad preachers to blame for introducing them to the wrong idea of Jesus in the first place. And you might have, dare I say, well-intentioned philosophers to blame for introducing them to the proposition of God and them never having known the person of God. Yeah. Um, I would I would say that I'm not introducing people to the proposition of God. I'm introducing people to the fact that God exists. And that fact may be a proposition, but that's not the essential nature of this of the situation. But it's also the not enough. nature of the situation is is that that God does exist and that they can know that objectively. And if that's the case, if they're interested, they can have a relationship with him. But but, but knowing idea, but you you agree, right, that knowing God exists is not the same as having a relationship with the existing God. Yes, I do. And, and that's that's why I said knowing God exists for many people has to be the first step in having a relationship with him. Right. Because and it's, and it's I, I would I would suggest that the only people that people like Dawkins could deconvert are people who know that God exists who don't have a relationship with him. I don't think you can unrelationship a person who has a relationship with God simply by arguments any more than you can relationship me into a God that I don't believe exists. The, it simply can't be done. The atheists do it every day. The atheists do it constantly. I know people personally who were believers and who became unbelievers because of the seductive fallacies of atheism. And those seductive fallacies come from a group of atheists who are a brand new breed of atheists. It used to be that atheists would just go out there and tell people why they don't believe God exists. What atheists are doing now is they're trying to convince people who do believe in God not to believe in God, and they're using fallacies in order to peel people away from their belief in God. Now, there's something in the scripture that we should pay attention to, and I know you may not believe that the scripture is true anymore, but the scriptures actually are full of examples of people who truly believed in God and had a relationship with him, but then they fell away. In 1 Peter, it talks about someone who can develop a heart of unbelief after they had truly believed in him and then depart from the living God. That's the actual rhetoric of the, of the Bible. Yeah, I just question how strong belief can be. Well, um, th th their their belief might not be very strong, but that's the that's why I wrote my book is to strengthen their belief by teaching them what the fallacies of atheism are, so that they don't get seduced by it. Because if their belief is not very strong, then I want to make sure that I help them not lose that belief. Okay, but because, you understand that because by defeating by, def by defeating one bad proposition, you don't that. That doesn't make another proposition true. And so given your argument entirely, just giving it uh, to you and uh, your book, let's just assume it's an excellent book. I look forward to reading it, um, that you defeat the bad atheist arguments. That's still not going to make the person who doubts that there's a God suddenly confident in their relationship with God again. What they what they Good. lack, they need in relationship. It's not just a matter of shut up those atheists. 
it's a, a it's a matter that they need to be doing something. But, um, but that but I would say that that's a false dichotomy. They need both. I'm, they need they need they need to shatter the the fallacies of atheism and they need a relationship with God. They need both of those things. So the the, the, two, the two are not mutually exclusive and one of them does not negate or oppose the other. The two work in hand in hand. That's why in the Bible it says be ready to give an answer to the hope that is, you know, for the hope that is within you. Um and do it with gentleness and respect. So that's that's exactly the model that I am living out right now. I am giving people a reason for the hope that is in me, and I'm removing the barriers to belief so that people can believe that the fact that God exists, and then I can inspire them and encourage them to actually have a relationship with him. All of those things work in concert with each other. They're not, they're not opposed to each other. So there's no danger in presenting a philosophical argument for the belief for the existence of God for people who need to know that God doesn't isn't just something that they believe in, but that it's actually true. And so the people who just believe in God but couldn't tell you why and couldn't give you a defense of, of the of belief in God, those people are in danger of being deceived by the fallacies of atheism, and they could be pulled away from their faith. That's what I'm trying to prevent. Out of, out of curiosity, I, I do see that we have some relevant audience questions. W would you guys want me to go to, to that, or do you guys want to continue? No, I, uh, I, I love audiences, and so um, go ahead and bring so, them in. Well, same thing, yeah. All right, so, so in the first place, not a question, but uh, fellow debate, D. Travis uh, joined in. He just wanted to say, Hello to everyone, and he's uh, enjoyed the debate. He hopes it's in the light of charity, and he's saying hi to uh, to Jordan and David. So, yeah, hey, Travis, thank you for joining in. Um, okay, so we have one question from Lori. This is going back to the problem of evil, and she says, Suffer suffering and evil entered into being when the creation, man, uh, sinned. Prior to, the to that event, there was no such thing as suffering, uh, so God did not create this world as a fallen creation. Um, so yeah, um, Phil and David, uh, we'll start with Phil. Um, what's your take on that as a Christian? I, I take it you're going to be agreeing. I think my wife is absolutely correct. Oh, okay. That's your wife. All right. <laughs> All right. Da David, tell, tell uh, Phil's wife why she's wrong. Okay. Well, uh, you know, Phil was contractually obligated to answer that way. <laughs> but no, I'm not. I, <laughs> but you don't I agree would, on everything. I would, I would say this. Uh, there are plenty of theologians uh, uh, who would suggest that uh, suffering and death and decay were a part uh, of creation before sin. And so first, it's not as, it's not as simple of matter as, oh, we, we get that stuff after sin. Uh, you get some new things after sin, but uh, not all. So that kind of depends on uh, the theologian uh, you're talking to. Uh, but I would, I would actually take it a step earlier than that. Uh, humans sinned, and therefore creation fell. But part of creation, then, I mean, if the goal was that humans should not sin, if that if that indeed is the goal, there's no need to put a very deceitful serpent in the garden to make sure they fall. There's no need to uh, 
personify, give, put flesh and bones on a tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's no reason to physically instantiate that uh, if you don't want them to have the knowledge. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that you might say um, were prerequisites to the fall that if, if they hadn't been left around that way, there would be no fall. Uh, I don't blame my six-year-old for shooting himself in the foot with a loaded gun that I left on the table. So that would, that would kind of be me. And it would kind of be silly to start the story with, and my six-year-old shot himself with a gun. Hang on. God made creation in such a way where this fall was possible to begin with. So much so that one thinks that maybe he had a good reason for wanting it to happen this way. So I don't, I don't think it logically coheres that he didn't want this outcome or the possibility of, of this outcome. And he gave us this good creation that had nice security, <laughs> you know, and was, and was kid safe and all that. No, that, that wasn't the creation he gave us. And so I think that you have to think a little bit uh, beyond the kind of simplistic approach of, Oh, we, we blew it and there goes creation. Well, maybe creation was built a little bit too fragile for creatures, creatures like us. Yeah, I would, I would uh, reiterate that, that everything that she said is true because sin, suffering and evil did enter creation when man sinned. The fall, the fall of, of creation did occur simultaneously with the sin of man. Um, so I would I would absolutely uphold that, and, and I'm, I'm not just doing it because I'm obligated to agree with my wife. I'm not. We we disagree on a lot of things, but um, and then she said prior to that event there was no such thing as suffering. I think that is valid also. I can't I can't find an example of suffering that occurred before the fall of man, at least suffering for mankind. That is, um, because there. Uh, there, there's a lot of valid schools of thought that say that um, nature was not red in tooth and claw until after the fall, and that that there was no predation in nature, that that uh, there was no violence, there was no so therefore there was no suffering. Um, God did not give man the option to eat animals until after the fall. Um, and then she said, God did not create this world as a fallen creation. And that's true, too. I mean, that, that's true by definition, um, that the, crea the, the created world was not fallen when God created it. It fell after God created it. Um, so the idea that God made it possible for man to fall doesn't mean that he deliberately wanted it to fall. The only thing that we can conclude from that is that he knew that it that it would fall and that he gave man the option. Are you going to love me forever or are you going to allow yourselves to fall into sin? And if he never allowed man to fall into sin, never allows man to rebel, then man is neat, is also not allowed and, and, and can't, does not have the potential for choosing God over over the alternative, which is evil. So man has to choose 
evil. He can't just be created in a in, in a man has to choose good and has to choose God. He can't just be created in a in a world where the opposite choice is not an option. That he's incapable of rebelling against God, because if you're incapable of rebellion, you're incapable of love. You have to have the option to be able to sin in order to have the option to be able to not sin. And so I don't think that it's necessarily a foregone conclusion that that God deliberately wanted the fall to occur. I think he allowed it to occur because he wants creatures who love him voluntarily instead of are just programmed to love him and are created and placed in conditions where love is the only option. Love is not the only option, and therefore love has meaning suddenly. Seems, seems if, to me that a condition where love is the only option would be pretty good. If love is the only option, man is programmed. All right. program, uh, a programmed machine cannot love. Right. And yet he left a loaded gun on the counter. So he didn't make man pull the trigger. Well, but okay. <laughs> All right, so so I'm gonna go to the the next one. So this is from Frank Tavoy. Um, so he says, is, "Is it so hard to understand? Uh, you don't believe in?" So this is kind of going to the definitional, the third argument, right? Like, uh, what does it mean to be an atheist versus agnostic? Sure. He's just saying, "What you know? Why why is it so hard for you to understand?" I think this is aimed at you, Phil, primarily. Uh, you don't believe in Zeus. You lack a belief in Vishnu and Buddha. This is exactly the same as what an atheist means when they say they lack, uh, they don't believe in the Christian God. So, um, yeah, did, what do you want to respond to, Frank? You want me to respond? Yeah, I think it's aimed at you, but I'll get D David's take afterwards. Okay. okay. Um, somebody once said something that I found pretty profound, and that is that uh, when the Christian says to the or when the, when the atheist talks to a Christian, the atheist is saying, we only believe in one less God than you do. Yeah. And that, which puts the atheist and, and the Christian in, you know, pretty close, you know, pretty close proximity. But we don't believe in Zeus or Vishnu or Buddha because belief in Zeus and Vishnu and Buddha is not logically coherent or there is there are rational reasons to reject belief in Zeus. Zeus is a contingent being. We believe that God is non-contingent. Therefore, we reject the idea of Zeus. But it is reasonable to believe in the Christian God because the Christian God is not a contingent being, and therefore there are no barriers to that proposition being true. We don't believe in Vishnu because we reject pantheism. Pantheism is self-defeating and logically incoherent, and we don't think that it's wise to believe in self-defeating and logically incoherent ideas. Um, Buddha never claimed to be God. You can be an atheist and a Buddha and, and a Buddhist at the same time. So Buddha is not a God that anybody believes in. Buddha was simply a human teacher, and he taught a certain way of living um, that part of which is compatible with Christianity and part of which is not compatible with Christianity. So uh, I, I, we, we don't just simply lack belief in certain gods for no reason. And we don't believe in the Christian God for no reason. 
we believe in the Christian God because it's coherent, because there's evidence, um, because there's historical and rational reasons to believe in the Christian God. There are not historical rational reasons, reasons to believe in Zeus or Vishnu or Buddha or any of the other pantheon of gods out there that are invented. Um, I, I, I once was in an, a debate with an atheist and the atheist said, um, I never said that God doesn't exist. I simply lack a belief that God does exist. And I said, okay, well, I never said I believed in God. I just lack the belief that God does not exist. Gotcha. So that's if if that's what we're going to do, we may as well all go home. <laughs> all right, awesome. So this one, I'm going to give you a different one because this one's directly for David. Uh, so this is from Mr. Jetty. And he, this is related to the hiddenness of God argument here. So David, just like you reserve the right to hide your face uh, from God, God reserves the right to hide his face from you. Uh, so yeah, what... If you can hide your face from God, why on earth can't God hide hide his face from you, at least under certain conditions, I guess? Who said I was hiding my face from God? I don't know where that proposition comes from. That said, uh, he is proving my point, and I don't feel like I need to go any further. In As I said the other day, I don't care what the reason is God is hiding. If God is positively hiding we're pretty much done. My, my, my case is proven. And so do we want to go with his uh, uh, question uh, and say that God is hiding because he has good reasons? Or do we want to try to steel man that a little bit? Because you're just giving me the, the argument. There's nothing to answer at that point. Fair enough. Fair enough. There, there is... Can I come in on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, so the idea of God's hiddenness um, can mean several different things. Um, it's not just a one-dimensional idea. Um, when this person says God reserves the right to hide his face, um, that can mean that God is hidden in one sense, but it doesn't mean that God is hidden in every sense. Um, someone once asked me, why does God hide himself from me? And my answer is that if he showed himself to you and you saw him, you, you'd be burned to a crisp. So it's his mercy that he doesn't show his face to you and show you who he is or what he is as he really is. So God has to reveal himself in ways that don't burn us up. <laughs> okay. So I mean, it, to, to quote an internet meme, cool story, bro. Um, I, no one, no one can possibly know that. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand that Christians say things like that to help them sleep at night. Uh, God is doing this because of this. Great. You confidently state this thing that God is doing as if you have a direct line of knowledge, uh, to know that you don't. So, uh, that's great. That answer doesn't give me any solace, even if it gives you any solace. But you're not the one that God is hiding from. So your fake answers to my real problem don't help. Okay. Well, it's not helpful to call my answers fake either. Well, I, um, when I say your fake am, answers, I am, I am speaking generically. So when you're saying that God, if he showed himself, he would burn you up. I'm saying that, that that's, that's a story. It's not a, it's not a reality. That's just a thing that someone made up. Well, and I, I don't have any reason to believe that if God showed himself to me, it would burn me up any more than burn Paula. 
Yeah, but you're you're begging the question when you say that's just a story that somebody made up. What if it is based on the evidence that the revelation of God is true and reliable? Because in the revelation of God, he does say that no one can see his face and live. And so I and am yet and yet Moses him. Moses saw him even if it, Moses saw him in whatever way he showed himself to Moses. Uh, Paul saw him. I keep mentioning Paul on the road to Damascus. So obviously God has ways of showing himself that don't burn people up. This That's is true. this is not a story that is exactly. coherent. But I'm but what I'm saying is that 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 God's hiddenness can mean several different things and that there are certain kinds of hiddenness that are there for our protection. But the but that doesn't mean that there are other that there are not other kinds of ways that God can reveal himself and show himself to people. And so he did, he did show himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, but he didn't, he didn't show Paul the, the entirety of his entire glory. So as to, is to make him into a French fry. Well, I didn't ask for his, the entirety of his entire glory. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, and no one that, is. <laughs> that's, that's the point I'm making. Is that it's, but it's there, but it doesn't answer. It doesn't that answer. God may hide himself from people that involve their protection. But he, even though that's true, there are other ways that God can show Himself to people that don't involve turning them into a French fry. And so therefore God does that. Right. So the suggestion that God doesn't show himself in a way because it would burn you up utterly misses the point. And it, it just doesn't address anything because as you just said, and we agree, there would be other ways this God has of showing himself. So I don't think you could say that the reason he doesn't show himself is because it would kill you. Okay. All right. So I'm going to step in because I, I we do have a follow-up question that I think is relevant to what you guys are talking about. And it's from someone who is always right. And they happen to be backing me up. Uh, so we got Lori again. But so so this was a notion, I, I admit, in the debate, I I missed I missed this. Uh, but Dave, one of David's argument was I thought he was denying that there were any atheists who uh, weren't real seekers. So that's why I, I brought him up as an example. But there there are people who aren't real seekers. But his point was more like, look, there aren't real seekers, but who cares? That doesn't matter. So so Lori's kind of asking, but but look, if you're a real, you have to be this true seeker. You have to be a digger. You have to be a bulldog. You never stop looking. You never stop caring. And um, they go after it like a mother bus bucket. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, uh, so so David, what, I guess, uh, yeah. Like, do you want to explain like why, why do you think it's okay to not be a real seeker? If you Sure. I, I will explain it for the thousandth time and I'll be glad to explain it 10,000 times more because I think it's a relevant question when talking to Christians, that it is a part of the Christian idea that you must seek God, that he wants you to seek him and that he doesn't want to make it too easy for you. Uh, that narrow is the way and few that will be that find it uh, and that sort of thing. So I understand this impulse for you to speak in terms of real seeker. I dismiss the argument though in two ways. One, I have been a real seeker and did not find. But the second way I think is more philosophically relevant anyway, which is... Uh, 
you haven't given me, I'm, I don't believe in God. I have no motivation to seek. None seek God. None are righteous. None seek you. None can seek you. This is, this is straight out of the Bible. In order for someone to even have the impulse to seek, there must be an introduction by God that is sufficient that makes them even want to seek because we are sinful people from the jump. So if God wants to be known, he has to be the one who is the first and sufficient mover to do it. But then the other slightly deeper philosophical question is, what the heck are we playing the game of hide and seek for in the first place? If the building is on fire, do not send me a cryptic message that I then have to study for the next 10 years to understand. Just get a bullhorn and say the house is on fire, jump out of the window, there is a mat underneath, go now. That's what you do. You don't hide and seek, you don't play this cosmic game that oh, well, I just, I'm not going to um, accept you as one of, of mine unless you really look hard and search high and low and really put some grunt into it. I don't buy that philosophically as a good, as a good way to present yourself anyway. But no matter what level uh, you play it on, I've been a seeker. Um, it, God has to be the first mover, first insufficient mover. And what the heck? <laughs> so on all three levels, I don't, I don't think that the seek argument works, especially for someone like me. Uh, Phil, yeah. you, you agree, right? <laughs> I, I, I would say that, um, I would say that if if uh, if you want to if you want to appeal to Scripture in terms of seeking God. Don't stop with the idea that where it says in uh, Romans chapter three that no one seeks God. Um, there's none righteous, not even one. Uh, that is probably and most likely hyperbole, because the other thing that the, the, there are many other things that the Bible says. One of them says, if you want to have a relationship with God, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Diligently seek him, in fact. Diligently seek him, exactly, which is what Laurie is saying. Diligently seek him. Be a digger. Be a bulldog. Don't stop. And then Jesus comes along and he says, um, those who seek will find. And there, and there's other places in Scripture where God says, whoever seeks me will find me. And if you study the Greek construction of those passages, and I'm sure you probably know this already, Dale. Or, I'm sorry, um, you're not Dale, you're David. Um, in the Greek construction, it says those who keep on seeking. That's the tense of the verb in the Greek. It says those who keep on seeking, those who, who persevere, who don't give up, those who keep on seeking until they find me are the ones who are going to find me. Dale, I would, I, would, I would suggest and encourage you that you may have stopped seeking, and it's possible that the day after you stopped seeking, you might have found him. Because the Bible doesn't say just seek him once or, or seek him for a certain limited, finite period of time. The Bible says 
keep seeking, keep seeking, don't give up, keeps beating. Right. It's 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 a little bit of a question begging type of thing, though, because um, I, I make this point uh, from time to time. The only way to actually seek God honestly is to be- kind of believe he's there. You have to have a reason to seek a God. And if you have if you have done your some seeking, you've looked into the matter because someone made a proposition that you found interesting and they suggested you do some reading. And so you start on that pathway. Uh, you didn't find it. You don't actually have any reason to keep seeking. And so the I, the action of continuing to seek because a book told you to continue to seek is to have accepted the proposition that there is a God who inspired the book that told you to seek. That's why it's question begging. And so it wouldn't, it doesn't actually make any sense to tell an atheist to seek and you will find because it's a religious act to begin with. I'm not begging the question because what I'm doing is I'm saying, if you are open to the possibility that God exists, that he has revealed himself, then you can arrive at the conclusion that he exists in an abstract sense without accepting any religious propositions or practice. But then it says, if you believe he exists, it promises you that he will reward those who seek him. That implies that it's possible to seek him. That implies that it's possible to believe that he exists in a real way. And that implies, therefore, that it's possible that you can enter into a relationship with him. So I'm not assuming that that's true from the outset. So I'm not begging the question. I'm simply throwing out the the offer. I'm simply throwing out the possibility. Is This is something that's worthy of consideration. And you might be surprised if you continue and don't give up. All right. So I have one last question. This one's aimed at Phil this time. And so Frank Tavoy, he's saying, uh, look, science works. Magic, supernatural magic doesn't. We, we are just honest. Uh, I'm assuming he's an atheist, obviously, and we want to understand more. You claim stuff that is proven not to be true, and you claim to have all the answers, but you have none. Um, so yeah, um, how would you want to look, are we just a bunch of superstitious bumpkins? Are we anti-scientific and do, are you arrogant? Do you, do Christians claim to have all the answers figured out and stuff? Yeah. Um, well, there are several problems here. First of all, um, I never claimed to have all the answers. So when it says you claim to have all the answers, that's simply false. I don't claim to have all the answers. I'm simply saying that it's that it that it's unreasonable to think that we can't have any answers and that we can have answers that are sufficient to move forward and to establish a relationship with God once we discover that he exists. So um, I wouldn't say that I have all the answers and you have no basis for telling me that I have no answers. Um, that's that's begging the question. You know, so um, and then. At the beginning, it says, "And science works." Well, what does that mean? I don't, I don't understand what the me, what, what the proposition "science works" mean. That 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 can mean a thousand different things. And then it says, "Magic doesn't." Well, what does that mean? Um, are, are is Frank implying that um, that since I believe that the supernatural uh, the supernatural beings and forces and events actually exist. Does that mean I believe in magic? 
Um, no, it doesn't mean I believe in magic. I just, I just believe in a uniformity of natural causes in an open system. That's all that means. So that doesn't mean that I believe in magic. It means that, that I believe that natural law is not the, all, the, the entirety and the, the totality of existence, that there's something that exists beyond natural law and that it can suspend natural law um, at certain times in history. So we're not talking about magic here. We're talking about the fact that it is incoherent to believe that the supernatural does not exist. Um, so, and then it says, we are just honest and we want to understand more. Well, that's great. Join the club. I'm honest and I want to understand more as well. So, so we're on the same page as far as that's concerned. Awesome. Yeah, David, what, what's your take on, on this? Um, are, are Christians anti-scientific? Is there a problem with Matt, you know, magic compared to science or in terms of working and are Christians Aryan? Do, do we claim to have all the answers when uh, it's been proven not to be true? Uh, some Christians are arrogant. Some Christians are anti-science. Uh, some Christians are whatever the other thing was. Uh, then again, you know, so are, so are some atheists. I mean, there are plenty of good scientists who are Christians. And uh, I think there are plenty on both sides who are honest and just want to learn more. So I don't, I don't see how... Um, I don't. I don't see that that type of question furthers uh, honest dialogue. Okay. And anything about your take about uh, supernatural versus the science works that you wanted to say, or you're good? Well, uh, look, I, you know, we we did a what a seven part show on miracles, so I obviously I have plenty to say about that. Uh, that's not probably. Um, appropriate Any, for this won't space keep us until like 3 p 3 a.m or something yeah 3 a.m of 2015 sometime uh 2025 sometime yeah i uh look i i do i do um shorts uh so almost dailies uh when i have time uh as well as my long shows and a lot of my shorts uh deal with some of the christian miracles um I, it, my last one, in fact, was a own miracles, and it's kind of a thing I do sometimes, which is um, let's play a game. Let's find the miracle. Here's the story. Here's here's how Christians described it. It's from Christians. These are the events that they give us. Which part of that was a miracle? Uh, so I'm I'm doing this in part to just highlight how. Christians kind of sometimes use this language to mean just about anything. And sometimes it seems like Christians are trying a little bit too hard to find a win for their God and their faith. And so they're very quick to call things miracles. And when that happens, I, ca I caution Christians about this all the time. When you do that and you make us look and we look for the miracle and we don't see it, it makes us think that's what all your miracle claims look like. And why should we bother the next time you talk about a miracle? And if this is how Christians talk about miracles today, then this is probably how they talked about miracles back then. And so why should we believe the Bible's claims for miracles? If you're talking about miracles and, and we can look at what you're talking about and this is what we get. So 
do I believe in some supernatural in interruptions of nature? I do not. I have not seen one myself. I imagine that one could happen that I could uh, believe, but I, all I have heard are stories of miracles. And I think it's unfair to ask us to believe in stories of miracles when other people believe because they've actually had a miracle. So if you believe in miracles and you believe that God has shown you a miracle, don't ask me to believe on a weaker basis than what you believe. If anybody believes because of a real miracle, then everybody should have that same opportunity. Well, you know what, David, can I just say something here? Um, you are far, far more thoughtful than Lawrence Krauss, Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, all combined. You, I, you, I think you are one of the most thoughtful persons that I've ever had a conversation with. Um, and I think Christians need to hear what you just said. Don't expect us to believe in something with, you know, I, I don't remember exactly how you put it, but don't expect us to believe something on, on a... On a a weaker basis than than you believe it is that kind right. of uh, right that's almost uh, it verbatim yeah uh, that i think that is so thoughtful and so important because i think i think you're right i think christians are way too quick to call things miracles and i think that cheapens the real miracles that i believe have occurred in the bible and 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 the other thing that we need to understand is that we don't believe in miracles like the resurrection of Jesus just because it's a nice story and we want to believe it and it's fun to believe it. Um, there are some Christians who do believe it because it's fun. And there are some Christians who do believe it because it was just a story that they read and, and, and they just decided they wanted to believe that story. But if it's true, when they get to heaven, God's not going to criticize them for believing without evidence. Um, but the Bible is a book of evidence. Evidence is an extremely high priority and extremely high value in the Bible. Um, in Acts chapter 1, it says, God has given proof of this to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, proof is something that is reasonable to ask for. And when the disciples were asked for evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead, they didn't say, just believe it by faith. Just believe it because we're telling you a nice story that you ought to believe. They never responded that way. The way the apostles in, in the book of Acts always responded to inquiries and challenges and skeptics was, hey, we saw the guy with our own eyes. We touched him. We talked to him. We spent time with him. This was after he was killed. This was after he was dead. We are eyewitnesses. And so the Bible places an extremely high value on eyewitness testimony and historical evidence. And so I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says, we, 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 just, we just expect you to believe in miracles just because we say so, just because it's a story, just because we believe it and you should too. You know, I, I don't see anything like that in the Bible. All right. All right. Awesome. So that's that's it in terms of the audience questions there. Hide the current comments. So, yeah, just want to say we breached the three hours mark. So 
thank you both <laughs> Phil and and David for for coming on. I, I hope that you two enjoyed yourself on the show. Uh, uh, like I said, I know in the beginning there was that one moment of, of heat, and my apologies to to Phil, and my apologies to Jordan if I didn't moderate that well. But apart from that, I think the majority of the show uh, between all three of you guys was was pretty pretty great. I think you guys covered a lot of ground. So I hope you, uh, Phil and you, David, enjoyed your time on the show. Absolutely. I'd love to uh, have a chance to explore some of these uh, topics further uh, with you, Phil. And uh, so whether that be on a moderated show with Dale, I taught him everything he knows, uh, and he's now a better moderator than me. Uh, so yes, I don't know if I, it was that good today. I am, I am both I'm <laughs> both proud and appalled of that fact. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're also welcome on um, on Forest uh, anytime. Yeah, I I um I just I don't want to gush here, David, <laughs> but um, you impress me. Um, I am you are so genuine uh, and so thoughtful, and you're a man of depth. Um, and that's obvious and you're extremely articulate. Um, so I enjoyed this conversation, uh, more than I can actually tell you, um, because I, uh, I wish that most of the non-believers that I talked to had your kind of grace. Um, unfortunately, so often they don't. And I know that often Christians don't have the kind of grace that you've displayed today. Um, I wish that everyone on both sides would show that kind of poise and that kind of sophistication and wisdom that you have, David. So I just really appreciated this and I enjoyed it to the hilt. Thank you so much. And uh, though trite it might be, ditto. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, thanks to my guests. Thanks to everyone in the audience giving great questions and everything like that. Uh, just so you know what I have next week, I've got two shows on uh, Saturday. So Saturday at 9am, Marvin Wallace will be on to talk about transgenderism and the LGBTQ, whatever the rest is, movement type stuff, um, both from a biblical perspective and from a political perspective. And then in the afternoon, I have Dr. David Kemble Cook coming on to talk about the possibility of miracles and David Hume's argument. And I, I think David David J might uh, be joining us for that as uh, kind of a, a co-guest. Is that correct, David? Yeah, uh, or a fly on the wall, <laughs> however it works out. But I, uh, I'm interested in the conversation and I love me some David Kemble Cook. Um, he is, a, I'll just throw this shout out uh, to... Uh, whatever claims of uh, grace I have and patience and what have you, I got a lot of that, at least in the internet world, from David Kimball Cook. Uh, he uh, was influential uh, in helping to reshape me into someone who can have better conversations. And so I, I don't mind saying that every chance I get. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, have a great night, everybody. And I will click the, the big red button. Take care. All right, folks. 